Hello, listeners. Welcome to Square Waves FM, episode number 29. Uh, really happy to have you listening, as always. I am uh, your host, Brian, and I have a special guest with me today. Please introduce yourself, Mr. Guy. I'm Ami Uradakago. You may remember me from my previous uh, stint on this podcast where we talked about magazines. Yes. Yes, that was a really good episode. I really enjoyed hearing about uh, magazines from, what was it, Netherlands and Belgium and Germany? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Thereabouts, and yeah. uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, that glad was... to have been there. Glad to be here again. Absolutely, very glad to have you here. Um, I uh, not too long ago you upgraded your computer after some time, did you not? I did. Oh, I was wondering if you'd like to uh, tell the listeners about it. Oh boy. Uh... Well, as it happened, a friend of mine actually gave me. Uh... A, a, P, a PC case that he had lying around uh, because he'd heard I was uh, looking to upgrade and uh, you know with a little advice from him I went and uh, bought myself some uh, hardware to fill that bad boy up so now I'm running Windows 7 on a uh, 8 core AMD uh, processor mm. 16 uh, gigs of RAM brand new uh, but uh, what yeah, yeah, AM, AMD uh, video card, Radeon. Really nice, runs really well. That's great. It was a big upgrade, too, a long overdue one, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely, because uh, for the longest time I was running my PC that I've had since, like, 2008 with Windows XP. Mm-hmm. Oh, good stuff. What was uh, What was the first thing you do with your machine when you upgraded it? Uh, well, I'd already purchased uh, Metal Gear Solid with five ground zeros. Well, that was after I'd upgraded, actually, but I was still using my old uh, video card because I uh, couldn't afford a new one uh, when I'd upgraded my motherboard and everything. But, yeah, I tried that out once I got my new video card, and it runs beautifully. Oh, that's great. I won't call it a console port. I haven't played it, but it was optimized for, like, the last generation. Of oh, the, oh, yeah. The well, it's gotten a semi-simultaneous release for PC, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, I think Xbox 360 as well. Mm, oh, so it is a current-gen game. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, okay. Because uh, we got uh, Metal Gear Solid Five Ground Zeroes. I mean, the Phantom Pain coming out next month. That's the uh, full game. This was the pro prologue, though a lot of people have derisively called it a demo. Mm. Yeah, I know that they certainly take their time telling the story in those games. <laughs> so even yeah. a demo or a prologue, I'm sure, is a pretty hefty experience. Uh, it lasts about an hour, cutscenes and all. Oh, is that all? But uh, there are a whole bunch of side missions you can do if you feel like it, which take place on the same map but have different objectives from the main story. Okay, that's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, I'm, but I'm a huge Metal Gear Solid fan. I love the story. I love all the wackiness, so I'm really looking forward to the new game next month. Oh, have you been uh, playing that since the first one? It was for the original PlayStation, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, but I played the PC version because I didn't have any consoles back then. Ah, uh, yes. The PC yeah, the version wasn't, wasn't a bad port. It was lacking a few features, most notably in the Psycho Mantis battle. I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of that, of what happens in that. No. Well, well, what happens in the original PlayStation version, Psychomantis, he's a psychic, obviously, and he uses his powers to scan your memory card. 
And if you have uh, save files for certain games on there, he'll say things like, oh, you like to play Castlevania, don't you? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. What a cool idea. But obviously they have to remove that from the PC version because obviously there's no uh, corresponding versions of those games for PC or anything. Right. Oh, that's that's a really interesting idea. Those are it's a Capcom series, Metal Gear, isn't it? Konami. Konami. So is that other Konami games? I assume yeah, any comments yeah, on? Yeah, exactly. That's great. What a clever idea. Although yeah. in the uh, GameCube remake, uh, they uh, well that was made by Silicon Knights, so they added in uh, references to Eternal Darkness and Super Mario Sunshine. Oh, that's too funny. I know that they've done all kinds of, like, fourth-wall-breaking meta stuff yeah. in that series. That's what I really love about that series. Like, they have these really serious stories, but they're not afraid to put in a lot of wacky shit like that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I played a little bit of the first one also on... I think I played it first on PlayStation, a little bit at a friend's house, and then I played it a little bit on PC... I don't remember what it was that got in my way, if it was the controls or something. I actually liked it a lot until something got in my way. It was a, it was at least 10 years ago, I guess, wasn't it? Probably more. 15 years, maybe. Oh, yeah. The first Metal Gear Solid launched in 1998, I reckon. Mm-hmm. So I, I hardly remember. And, and that wasn't even the first game in the series, because there, before that, you had Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2 on the MSX. Oh, did it start on MSX? I did play Metal Gear 1 on the Nintendo, the NES. Yeah, that was a port of the MSX version. That, that also had a bunch of features removed from it, most notably the final boss, which the NES hardware just couldn't handle, apparently. Ah, uh, I've read about the final boss. I didn't realize it wasn't on the NES version. Yeah. Something about being able to talk the, the end guy into actually killing himself and you skip the whole, the whole end battle. I'm not sure you're thinking of the right game there. Maybe but... I'm thinking of the wrong thing. Yeah, but uh, in the NES version, basically, you just destroy a supercomputer that controls the super weapon Metal Gear. But in the M MSX version, you actually get to fight Metal Gear itself. Oh, okay. I'm looking this up. I remember... Well, well what I, th I think what you're actually thinking of sounds like Fallout. Yeah, I I've heard the same thing about Fallout. I thought... <laughs> I don't know. I can't find it in this uh, limited yes, amount of time. Uh, Maybe I'm getting my wires crossed. As far as I know, nothing like that ever happens in the Metal Gear games, where you can just talk the uh, final boss to death or anything. <laughs> okay, no no doubt I'm, I'm getting my wires crossed then. Yeah, whatever. But, but yeah, after uh, the original Metal Gear and MSX, you had Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, which was never ported to any other systems until the, uh, until the first two Metal Gear games were included as a bonus with Metal Gear Solid 3. Hmm. But the NES got an completely original game called Snake's Revenge, which, uh, which was declared non-canon later because it completely doesn't match up with anything that happens in the rest of the games. Okay, I guess at that point they figured they could do whatever they wanted. They didn't think there would be like a big continuity game to game. Yeah, but st even so, you know, considering the massive gap between Metal Gear 2 and Metal Gear Solid... Uh, the later games kind of uh, pick piecemeal what story elements from the first two games they want uh, without a whole lot of regard for continuity because obviously a lot of things changed uh, technology-wise between then, so... Right. Well, do you still uh, sneak around in uh, cardboard boxes? <laughs> Definitely. Oh, you do? Okay. I, I knew that was like a trademark of the series, <laughs> at least as of the first couple of the, the solid games. Actually, a uh, funny thing I heard 
uh, exclusive for to the fa- Steam version of the Phantom Pain, yeah, I can actually get a cardboard box with the Steam logo on it. <laughs> a Steam box. Uh-huh, I see. I kind of don't like when that happens. St- uh, Steam used to do that more frequently, but they would have, like, a, a multi-platform release, and somewhat arbitrarily, they would just stick a bunch of, like, references to Valve games or to Steam or something in the middle of this game without any context or real reason to. Mm-hmm. What, uh, game, what games did that happen in? I'm trying to remember the name of it. There was one that I played, and it was like a series of reflex testing games. This was around... The Beat Dot series? It was... No, it was... Quite a long uh, time or, ago. It was around the uh, time I mean, of Bioshock. Bits, whatever. Yeah, no, oh, you're thinking of the Bit Trip games, right? Yeah. Um, did those have did those have branding? This the game I'm thinking of came a lot earlier than that. As a matter of well, fact. well, I'm I'm not sure, but since you mentioned mentioned rhythm games, I was thinking of the Bit series. Ah, uh, so this wasn't actually a rhythm game that I'm thinking of. It was like a reflex game where oh. um, something would happen and you'd have to react in one way or another as quickly as possible. Um, it kind of felt like I think it was a port from a Wii game, believe it or not. And you mm-hmm. had to like move your mouse in like circles and in uh, in. Uh, like infinity eight uh, figure eight uh, patterns, or something would happen, and you'd have to click your mouse as quickly as possible, or there'd be like a fly swatting thing. I just can't remember the name of it, but for Mac no reason Pixel? whatsoever, nope. Um, I don't. I'll uh, I'll load up Steam on my phone here and see whether it. I can... It kind of sounds like a WarioWare game, but obviously those have never been ported to anything other than uh, Nintendo consoles. WarioWare is actually a pretty close analogy to what I'm thinking, but it like it wasn't as good and it wasn't really funny or anything. It was yeah. all sort of um, framed as like uh, like Zen Ninja kind of training, where you're uh, mm. trying to get your uh, reflexes in tune with the universe or whatever. Um, there were some like weapons uh, training things with nunchucks and with uh, swords, and so some of the dummies that you would punch would have, like, Gordon Freeman's glasses on them for just no mm. reason whatsoever. Mm. It just kind of takes you out of it, because it's, it's, there's no reason for it to be there, and it reminds you of science fiction stuff in the middle of this otherwise, like, modern and, like, nature-themed. Uh, no, no, it, it, it doesn't sound familiar to me at any rate. Well, I've got something like 500 games on my Steam library, so as much, <laughs> as, I'm, much as I'm scrolling through my list here, something tells me I'm not quite going to get there. Boy, would I love it if Steam let me sort my library better if it had, like... Steam had, has this great tagging system, the community tagging system, which uh, allows you to tag games according to whatever categories you want, and hmm. uh, other people in the community can tag them too, and the most popular tags are searchable. So you can search for, I don't know, you can search for, like, first-person co-op uh, difficult games with good soundtracks, for example, based on all the tags. Um, but they don't let you do that for your own library, which is a real shame. I wish I could click one button and see all the co-op games, or one button actually, and click all the point-and-click adventure games. Actually, can't you assign certain categories to your games uh, you can, in your library? You can, and I used to. Um, you can right-click a game... You, like, right-click it and go to Properties, and you click... Or, no, you right-click a game, you click Category, you either click a checkbox next to a category, or you can type in a new name, and you click OK. It's something like five or six clicks per game, and I literally have about 500 games. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I and can then, see where that might become a bit uh, tedious. It, it is tedious, and they're kind of like putting your games into a single folder each, um, whereas I'd love to... 
like, let's say Fallout 3 is like a first-person shooter, but it's also an RPG. And I'd love to assign those two tags to the game so that if I search for one category, then they, uh, the game shows up uh, no matter mm-hmm. which of those two I search for. Because <clears throat> invariably, there would be a game that matched two or three categories, and I'd arbitrarily stick it into one of my categories, and it wouldn't be there. And then I'd have to rely on search, and it kind of negated the whole reason for going through that whole tedious exercise to begin with. So I just uncategorized everything. I found some tool. There are third-party tools, actually, that let you categorize your stuff um, according to... Well, on this, I think uh, Valve themselves, or at least um, on Steam itself, the uh, publishers of a game can categorize a game as a single category. You know, there might be, like, third-person platformers and first-person shooters, um, and they'll all be called action. And that doesn't help me whatsoever. I don't care. Action game, that doesn't help me. So you you can... some some games that are just marked indie, like that's I know. not that's not even a genre. Exactly, very frustrating. So I didn't bother. So I just used this third party tool to take my categories away. So now I either sort my games alphabetically and just kind of look around for them, or you can uh, sort you can sort them by uh, recent, because that's kind of handy. Chances are, if I'm in the middle of a few games, I'll want to play those ones again, and so those show up at the top of my list. Oh, yeah, I always just have mine set to uh, what games I currently have installed. That's what I did for a while, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I changed it to all games for whatever reason, so I could see things that are not installed as well. I don't know if it does me any favors. There's just no reasonable way for me to to be aware of what I own, which is kind of mm. stupid for me to buy so much stuff. I think <laughs> I, I used some web tool once that uh, told me that, like, 18% of my library I hadn't played for one minute. Oh yeah, you use something like that as well. It's a backloggery. Okay, so that's that makes me feel real bad about myself. But <laughs> yeah, me, are me like too. Which games. is why I've kind of which is why I've kind of stopped buying games in bulk, and instead I just try and finish one game before buying a new one. I seem to be running low on games that I really want to buy. That mm. was that was the big driver for me. I guess it's largely because of uh, bundles, but. <laughs> I find yeah. that pretty much everything I want to own, I already do, except for like a very slow trickle of, of new things. But that's not a bad thing. I the, the thought crossed my mind briefly. Maybe I should like play every single game in alphabetical order or something until I've actually <laughs> played all my games for five minutes. But I don't want to. <laughs> that's not fun. I own things. Yeah, that are fun. no, f- f- five minutes is not enough to get a good impression of not well, not every game. Or I thought at least five minutes, just to give them a chance. Mm. I feel badly that there's some poor developer, maybe uh, a single solo indie, or maybe a team of three people or something, that poured their heart and soul into some project and wound up in some bundle, and they probably made like $75 each for like five months' worth of work, and then nobody even played it. My heart goes out to them. But at the same time, I don't think I'll be the one to, to crack open the game. Yeah, for, for for me, it's uh, like I start playing a new game, and if I enjoy it, then I'll ch- try my best to, uh, you know, uh, play it until the end. And if some unforeseen thing happens, like either a te- technical glitch or something that really pisses me off about it or annoys me, then I'll quit playing and just move on to something else, because I have way too many games uh, as it is, so I... Tend not to tend not to want to waste too much time playing just one at a time. Me too, for the most part. Either I'll I'll feel like playing a bunch of stuff 
intermittently, or if something really hooks me, which seems to happen less and less lately, then I'll I'll dedicate myself to that if I can. Well, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll try to dedicate myself to one game at a time. Uh, well, one big game at a time, and in between, I'll play some uh, stuff like uh, Spelunky or Euro Truck. Mm-hmm. I can't play Spelunky anymore. That game is so good, and I'm so bad at it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I just know I'll never get anywhere in it. I made the mistake, usually for a game that's like a roguelike game like that, where it's randomized and intentionally very, very hard. Um, I do my best not to watch anyone play it on Twitch or anything like that, just so that I don't see all the secrets and stuff. But I think after four or five hours of Spelunky, I just made the decision that I wasn't going to dedicate the time needed to be good at that game. So I took a look at Twitch, and I saw levels I'd never seen before, and I saw people playing in ways that never occurred to me and skipping stuff that I never thought I should skip. Yeah. Exploits, and it's uh, obviously there's enormous, incredible depth to that game. It's a very, very smart game. But uh, I, I can only dedicate myself to so many of those. Binding of Isaac is kind of the game like that that I chose to stick with. I, st- I still play that from time to time as well, but I uh, haven't haven't really made that much progress aside from maybe beating the game a few times, but most of my runs just end in failure. Yeah, they do for me too. Although, this uh, I, I've been playing it a little more recently. I play it almost every morning because I play it on my exercise bike before work every day, but it's a good enough game that I still play it after work like for half an hour or something too. And I think I had my best winning streak ever, which I think was five... Five wins without dying. Damn. So I'm, I was impressed. I took a screenshot. The people I watch on Twitch. There's one guy I love to watch on Twitch, uh, Twitch a guy named Cobalt Streak. Very nice guy. Um, and unbelievably talented at Binding of Isaac. He had like, I can't remember, he had something like 5,800 hours or something in the original game. And then the new one came out, and he's probably getting close to that much now as well. Sheesh. Um, his winning streaks are like 180 or something without dying. It's a, a real event when he dies. <laughs> so it's like a magical ballet watching him play that. Oh, by I the see. way, I found that game I was thinking of. It was called Ninja Reflex. Okay. And it's not the best game. March 2008, so that explains. I don't think I've played it since that year either. <laughs> but wasn't it a bad game? Yeah, I see like a in uh, the first screenshot on the Steam store. There's like a, a old uh, man who's like a uh, karate trainer, and he's wearing, like, a red karate outfit, a gi, and he's also wearing uh, Gordon Freeman's glasses. Ninja Reflex. There's a, it's called Ninja Reflex Steamworks Edition. So, maybe March 2008, that might have been shortly after uh, Steam created that Steamworks thing that allows you to integrate, like, the web browser and achievements and uh, other stuff into your game directly. So maybe this was a showcase for that. I see, I see in some other... Uh... Screenshots. He's wearing uh, like gloves with the Half-Life logo on it. Yeah, it sure cheapens your game by doing that, if you ask me. Yeah, it depends on how you handle it, but in this case, yeah, it is pretty intrusive. Yeah, I can't really think of a lot of circumstances. I mean, unless your game has no context, like um, I haven't tried it, but there's a game called Zen Pinball. I forget the name of the oh, company yeah. that makes it. They just made a portal pinball game, and I mean that's fine because I mean pinball is always themed. Yeah, obviously. To something. But yeah. they, they, they've made a whole shitload of different tables for that game, like a uh, whole bunch yeah. of different Marvel uh, Marvel Comics uh, tables as well. Yes, they did. 
I bought a bundle of those. It might have been on a Humble Bundle once. There was only one table that I played, and of all places, it was on the Windows 8 uh, app store that I bought this game. I guess that was before it was out on Steam. Oh. It was it was one table called Epic Quest, and it was sort of a like RPG-themed uh, game, like fantasy RPG, where you're fighting monsters and doing combat and blocking and attacking and uh, getting experience points and getting loot drops and selling your old gear, but all in the context of a of a uh, pinball machine, Epic Quest. It was a really, really good table. I played the shit out of it, and then I bought it again on Steam. I don't remember why, but I just did, and I played it all over again. It's an exceptionally fun game, and it's very tongue-in-cheek. It has... Um, the voice of uh, like your protagonist, he kind of sounds like uh, Carrie Elways, who's like the guy from um, Princess Bride, Wesley. Oh, uh, kind of sounds like him. I don't think it's him, mm. uh, but it's a that's a really good table. I've tried like fifteen or something other tables of theirs, and I hate them all. That's the only one that I like. Mm. When it comes to pinball, I really love what's it called? Pinball Arcade, I think, is the name of a real simulator one where they actually rebuild. Actual pinball tables from like, oh, the. I, I think I have that game. It's um, it's free for the first table. Oh. And then you can buy other ones. I think it's just phenomenally good, unbelievably good. Because I used to own two pinball machines, so I've, I'm less a fan. I won't say I'm not a fan of arcadey kind of pinball games, like computery ones, because I love Epic Pinball by Epic Mega Games. And several other ones like that. But this one, uh, Pinball Arcade, is a real simulator. And I appreciate it all the more for it. Because it, they pick really fun games to begin with. And they reproduce them in a very lifelike manner. I just love them. Oh, I see. Now, now the game I was thinking of was Microsoft Pinball Arcade. Which also recreates a bunch of uh, real, real existing pinball uh, machines. Microsoft Pinball Arcade. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty old game. I uh, picked it up for cheap one time. And I haven't really played it much like... That's probably the last pinball game I've played. <clears throat> I, I've never been terribly good at them, but I enjoyed them from time to time uh, in my early days. Especially, like you mentioned, games like Epic Pinball, Silver Ball, uh, the what, what were the developers called? Twenty First Century, the guys that made Pinball Dreams, Pinball Illusions. Oh, I can't remember what the team was called, but it was the same people, wasn't it, that made Epic Pinball, just for another company? No, 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 no. Epic Pinball was Epic Mega Games themselves. Okay. Oh, I thought it was the same people that did Pinball Dreams. No, pin, uh, Pinball Dreams, Pinball Fantasies, Pinball Illusions, those were all the same company. Hmm. Okay. I thought that might have been the same people, if not the same, if not the same company, but maybe I'm wrong. No, no. Epic made their own game, uh, pinball games. Hmm. Epic did it first too, I think. Uh, no, I, I'm actually pretty sure the the other uh, games came first on the Amiga. Hmm. Ah, uh, okay. You're probably right. And I played one. What was it called? Night Mission is a, a pinball game I played in CGA. That was for my old 8086. Oh my here. god! Oh my god! Is that one of those made in the pinball construction set? I don't know. It could be. We had a whole ton of those as well. They they all looked the same. They all played god-awfully. This is <laughs> like a standalone game, so I don't know what it was made with. Yeah, yeah, they were all standalones, but a lot of those early CGA pinball uh, machines were all made with the pinball construction set released by EA. Hmm. Well, I really liked this game. Anyway, like it was, I, it was like I, I distinctly remember we had one called Zipper Flipper. <laughs> 
And over the years, I, I I encountered a bunch of others that all played the same like that. So, hmm. I'm taking a look at Night Mission. It looks like there might have been an EGA version, or at least some other version that had more colors. Hmm. Just searching for. Oh, it looks like they must have had it on a few platforms because there's a monochrome one. And there's one that's blue and yellow. The CGA one is kind of like cyan and magenta and white. Okay. Could very well be a pinball construction set game. Uh, is this it? Night Mission Pinball by Sublogic. No. I can't read it. It's too blocky. Well, actually, Apple the la- last pinball game I played was uh, Balls of Steel because I got that for free on Steam when I uh, got the the 3D Realms uh, anniversary collection on there. I'd already bought it from, ah. three, from the 3D Realms site... Uh, themselves and then I asked them to get a Steam key as well and same included in that in, what? Yeah, same for me. I did the same yeah. thing. Included in that were a bunch of games that weren't included in the original release, like Balls of Steel. Mm-hmm. I I haven't played it a whole lot, but it seems like a neat uh neat little game. I didn't play it that much <clears throat> It looks nice. I should play this thing. The only thing that I really played from that whole anthology was Terminal Velocity. That's that, kind of the only one that I picked up that kind of held up, I thought, over the years. That, that, uh, oh, you mean Terminal Velocity itself? I thought you meant there was a Terminal Velocity pinball table. Ah, uh, no, the Terminal Velocity <laughs> uh, flying in combat yeah, yeah, game. Yeah. You're familiar uh, with that one? Oh, yeah, definitely. I played the shit out of that uh, back in the day. Me too. Still still got an, still got it uh, originally on CD-ROM. Oh, wow. Did the CD-ROM one... Have any differences from the floppy one? Uh, yeah, it has uh, fully animated cutscenes between uh, levels. Mm. Uh, it has a whole hidden uh, world, from what I remember. Oh, that was a very technologically cool game. Being able to fly above the clouds was really neat. Flying along the ground was neat. Oh yeah, that's flying through a great. hole in a tunnel—that was awesome. Nothing like it. Very awesome, awesome music too. But unfortunately, yeah. the game gets kind of repetitive after a couple of levels. It's extremely repetitive, but younger Brian didn't mind blowing up every tree <laughs> and every building and every object. I just love those uh, yeah. bitmap, bitmap explosions. Like, everything is a nuclear mushroom cloud, basically. No younger, y- younger Akago was like that, too. <laughs> oh, really, really good game. And it holds up. It really does. But yeah. may- maybe, not, uh, maybe not from the first level to the last level, but it's totally worth a try. Definitely. Um, oh, I've been, I have been reading a book that I wanted to tell our listeners about. This was a book that was recommended to me by, uh, Chris. Hi, Chris. Uh, hi. Former co-host, current co-host, whatever we want to call him. He'll be back before long, we hope. Um, he had recommended to me a book called Commodork by Rob O'Hara. Oh. Which is a great book. I, I don't know if it's still going on, I looked it up on the Amazon Kindle store, at least the Canadian one, because you have to buy, like, from your local Amazon <laughs> store. Um, I think it was regular 12 or 15 bucks or something, and it was on sale for 3 which I couldn't pass up, so I bought it a few months ago, and I only started reading it a couple of weeks ago. I've been reading it on my lunch breaks, here and there. And, um, it's all about... Uh, this guy, I guess, is about 6 or 7 years older than I am, I suppose. So he's talking about, um... Trading, trading games and piracy, and calling BBSs on his like 300 baud modem, whereas my first modem was 2400 baud. 
So this was like early 80s um, Atari computers and Commodore 64s. I don't know if he's going to go talk about IBM stuff. It's mostly about Commodore, which is his favorite system. Yeah, I uh, gathered that from the title. Right. <laughs> so it's just it's it's a lot like listening to Chris tell a story. This book, oh, it's wow. all stories, and it's like all his uh, personal experiences with uh, other Commodore users. And he was a kid at the time when this was going on, so kids his age and kids that are older. And he is. Well, there were two stories that really stood out, which I thought were quite funny. Um, one of them was, and this sounded not too unfamiliar with my own childhood too, um, calling BBSs and wanting to download any game, no matter what it was, because if it was a game, then you just had to try it. So you download, <laughs> yeah. you download games, but you, in order to download games, you need to have file credits on a BBS, which means that you had to have uploaded pro- usually the same amount that you wanted to download, or sometimes uploading something would give you permission to download three, mu- three times as much as you uh, uploaded, something mm. like that. So this guy said that he had to collect not only the games he wanted, but also games that he thought nobody else would have. So he would just collect absolutely everything and upload them all over the place and make sure that he was maintaining a balance of credits on all these different BBSs. So there was this one BBS he really wanted to get into, uh, which was a pretty elite one with all the latest and greatest stuff. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, he had a whole bunch of software that he wanted to send them to kind of prove his worth to the sysop, the the uh, leader of the BBS, the uh, founder and uh, operator. So he uh, had the guy come over to his house, and he was like a, a guy that was like four or five years older than he was, some like snotty teenager with a car and uh, a really bad attitude. So the guy said, oh, okay, I'll come over and I'll copy your games and you can copy some of my games and then I'll give you access to my BBS. So the guy drives over to his house and he copies all of his games and... Uh, this guy, Rob, says, okay, you're copying my games. I want to get started on yours now. Where are they? And he said, oh, they're just in my car. I'll grab them in a second. So he copies the last one of his games, and then he says, okay, I'll go out and get your games now. Goes to his car and drives away. And <laughs> oh, no. Drives away with his windows down so that uh, Rob can hear him laughing as he <laughs> drives his kids away. What an asshole. That's a huge asshole. So that's pretty cool. I don't remember what the story, the continuation was, but Rob gets his revenge one way or another. <laughs> nice. Um, and the other yeah, one... Yeah, those were different times back then. I uh, never really experienced the whole BBS uh, thing myself. They were, definitely were de- they were definitely different times. It was a time where kind of computer culture was completely under the radar. Yeah. There, there is a great story about, like, one BBS operator like that uh, for a BBS he used to call all the time, and one day the BBS just disappeared. Oh. And uh, Rob got scared because this is a BBS where he was, like, the co-sysop. He was, like, uh, one of the uh, moderators of the BBS, and he provided them tons of uh, pirated software. And the BBS software that... Uh, uh, it had uh, his real name and address and phone number and all this oh. incriminating personal evidence on it. Um, and then, uh, like a week later or so, he saw in the newspaper that this guy had gotten busted for trading uh, oh. credit card numbers oh. with uh, other people. This was another aspect of uh, BBS culture, kind of the underground. There was uh, the wares, which were games and software, pirated stuff. But then there was uh, freaking, hacking, anarchy, yeah, cracking, yeah, yeah, viruses, yeah. and carding. So carding being trading stolen credit card numbers and buying things and charging them to somebody else. So, like Rob, I never got into the worst parts of those those aspects of uh, underground BBS stuff, but apparently some people did, and so this guy got uh, busted by the uh, FBI, him and his wife, for uh, 
making use of this stuff and for it was basically for identity theft, I guess you would say. But yeah. Although, although there was no word for it in the eighties. So, um, at first, Rob was terrified for like two weeks. He had a knot in his stomach because he knew that he, the FBI were going to come knocking on his door and uh, talk to his parents about uh, how his ki- their kid is a criminal mastermind. But after two weeks, when nothing happened, uh, he wanted to pirate software even more because it was obvious to him that the cops had all this evidence against him and didn't care about software pirating piracy mm-hmm. one bit. So he felt invincible after that. So that was super cool. I am invincible. Invincible. <laughs> it's a great book. I'm having a really, really good time reading it. I think it's like 170 pages or something. It's really quick. I'm about two thirds through it. I'm loving it. I love the mm. casual voice of it, and just this guy is a—he uh, he belongs on this podcast, really. And in fact, if oh, I'm yeah, not definitely. mistaken, I think he is the person who took over for Carrington Vanston on the uh, No Quarters podcast, which is a weekly podcast with Mike McGinnis about arcade uh, coin-op games. Oh, yeah, I think you mentioned that before. I have mentioned it before. It's a hilarious podcast. I'm behind on a few episodes now, ever since Carrington left, and I'm pretty sure it's Rob O'Hara who joined instead. I should listen to them again, especially now that I'm reading this guy's book. But uh, mm. they, they take a different arcade game every week, and they talk about the historical significance and the history of yeah. how the game did, and the, the, then they talk about the experience of playing it, and then they compare their high scores, and that's an episode. It's like an mm. hour each week. Very, very good podcast. Very funny. No, the book definitely sounds like something I should check out because I I love hearing about all the BBS stories from you and Chris before. So, oh well, thank you. Glad to hear it. This the book is it's just like listening to us. Really, I found <laughs> so many parallels reading this guy's stuff, even though it was many years before. And the only thing that didn't sound familiar to me, although I guess it did eventually, was he was talking about how often if you had a lot of games to trade with somebody because BBSing was really local, you didn't want to pay long distance fees to. Uh, call someone's bbs out of town so there are people that were usually not too far away from you geographically so often with the 300 baud modem it was faster to just drive to someone's house and copy the disc and then drive all the way home again yeah just such a crazy thing to think of (laughs) nowadays but that's sort of the way that things happen again i guess when cd-rom games first came onto the scene and they were you know we were used to copying games that were maybe at the most 10 floppies i just read an article about um police quest 4 which I own in floppy, and that's, I think, 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 floppies, and that was huge for them. But then when CD-ROMs came around, they were like, you know, 500 times the size of a single floppy. So that really turned piracy on its head for a while. Mm. And if I may be candid for a moment... Of course. 8 to 12 discs could be spent on a much better game than Police Quest Four, in my <laughs> opinion. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're right. I mean, that could be 8 to 12 more games. Hmm. <laughs> But I kind of have a soft spot for that game, and I don't know if it's because of the pure technology of the game. Like, I own... I like that game enough that I owned it on floppy, and I bought it on CD as well. And yeah. I think I played it on CD for five minutes, and then I uninstalled it and put the floppy one back on, because <laughs> Sierra's voice acting is so bad around that time. Yeah, I can, I can understand that, but I played it way too late to appreciate it for its technology. And to me, it just seemed this really drab and... Un, un, joyless thing. It is. It definitely is. I wrote a com. It was on PC Gamer's website. I think that I was 
chatting with somebody about it. And I kind of came to the conclusion that maybe what it is that I like about it, aside from the technology, which is amazing, because, I mean, it's all digitized actors on digitized photographs of the locations, which was unheard of at the time. It was technologically a beautiful game. But um, there are scenes, like, there are, in the beginning of the game, your longtime partner and good friend is murdered. And uh, then the uh, the press... Uh, the press interviews you and they're really harsh with you and they, they basically harass you until you shove the reporter out of the way and then you get a bunch of flack from your boss about it and then you have to go patrol the streets of uh, South Central Los Angeles in the 90s and there's uh, all these themes about gangs and stuff they really portray the detective as an absolutely thankless job and I guess it's the perseverance of the protagonist to kind of keep doing good for the community that I kind of liked about that game because mm. it is a real downer of a game, but yeah, what they, I definitely what they don't remember say it being kind of, a downer, but not in that sense. <laughs> it's totally a downer, but the, in many, the, Oh, you're, you're just thinking of the gameplay itself. Yeah. The most, the most I remember of that game is you go over to your desk and you pick up a form and you fill out the form and you uh-huh. hand it over to your colleague and you do it at every single fucking day. Oh, sure. There's stuff like that in all the Police Quest games, though. Yeah, like, but would... that, that one was the absolute worst of, of all of them. I remember one scene where you have to get... Um, you're collecting evidence, uh, which you do in all the games. You, there's um, the scene of some people getting... Uh, who, who have been uh, executed by uh, gang members. And there's a brick wall that's absolutely full of bullet holes. And you have to use this little kind of crowbar thing to... Uh, remove the bullets from every single hole. And there's no real indication of whether you've done them all. And if you haven't done them all, then it doesn't let you complete the day. So, and it's it's literal pixel hunting. So that I didn't like too much, but it's kind of indicative of what it must be like to be a detective and kind of the amount of rigor and detail that yeah, you have I, to I can, apply. I, can un- I can understand wanting to uh, have a realistic depiction of police work, but make it fun, goddammit. Where is the could, fun in that game? I guess you could ask whether any of the Police Quest games are fun then, because kind of the... One and two, maybe, but well, the after, fun after is that mostly... it all went downhill, in my opinion. One, I think two is the most fun of the games, if if you use that word to describe this, because there's a real <laughs> variety of things that you do and yeah. locations that you go to and wacky characters. Police Quest 2 even has a cameo of Lisa Larry <laughs> in it, That's which true. is ridiculous. And also and, a really out-of-place... Uh, scene where terrorists hijack an airplane and you have to defuse a bomb. Yeah, I know, because why? Because video games, right? It's really <laughs> stupid. It's very stupid. Um, the other, but the other, yeah, other than two, and to, uh, to a great deal, too, as well, it's all about, like, following procedures, and if you don't do things exactly the correct way, yeah. the worst possible thing happens, because exactly. you skip one step. And often that meant, like, opening up your manual... And seeing what it says, in this case, you do this, 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 this. It's like eight different steps. And you actually have to kind of type those steps into the yeah. parser or, or do them onto the, on the interface. In uh, like I said, exactly. it's admirable that they want to take the realistic approach, but most of the time you were just following a checklist uh, from your manual. So Yeah, I always like that for whatever reason. I don't know if I was just a studious, nerdy kid, I suppose, but I like following well, instructions like that. Well, okay, I say that I don't like it in Police Quest, but on the other hand, King's Quest Three, when you're filling out, uh, when you do uh, trying to prepare the magic spells using the instructions in the manual, that on the other hand, I uh, I always liked. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't do that one personally, but that sounds similar to the copy protection in Freddy Farkas, which was that it oh. comes with this big book of uh, like medicinal remedies. Yeah, it's like a recipe book basically, and so yeah. you have like fifty different recipes on your shelf, and you have to mix them in the right way and prepare them in the right way and use yeah, the that, that quantities. Just... That just got really tedious because the whole first chapter is nothing but that. I don't know if there was a bug in my game or if I misunderstood the instructions or something, but I could not get past that part as a kid whatsoever. I owned the game. I love the manual so much I would like keep it beside my bed and just read it for fun mm. at nights. Um, but I think I must have. I think I actually did misread the instructions for like a year because I couldn't get past like day one or day two or something. I think it was day one yeah. because you, of, I couldn't figure out how to do uh, to to make one of the pills properly. Well, the, the thing is, uh, one of the prescriptions you get was uh, what was it? Oh, there's one that you have to go back and and verify with the uh, yeah with the doctor. doctor because he's all drunk and scribbles it out in his drunken handwriting. Okay, okay, so it wasn't that then. No, I somehow got past that. It might have been through a walkthrough, or it might have been. It was probably from a walkthrough. Yeah. I did not like that game. Well, I love the writing, I... I love the settings, but I don't like the game. Well, I uh, I got through it, like, I think last year. It, it had its moments to me. It definitely has its moments. I think it was last year that I went through it, too. I just decided I'm. it's about time I finished it. Not the best Sierra game, but not the worst, either. Mm-hmm. And that damn theme song. <laughs> it gets in my head all the time, and it will not shake out of my ear. That's a very catchy theme song. He was born in old St. Louis. <laughs> and that's another game that I only own on floppy. And so it was just like the general MIDI follow the bouncing ball thing, so I would have to kind of sing it in my own head. And I have the CD-ROM version myself. That's probably worth That's probably worth owning on CD. I was just so oh. burned by crappy... Sierra voice acting that I just avoided all the CD versions. The only oh, yeah. CD no, version, but the CD, uh, the voice acting in this game was actually pretty de- pretty decent. They got uh, some familiar actors like Cam Clark does the uh, protagonist. Mm-hmm. He was also he's a very uh, f- familiar uh, cartoon voice actor. He also did, among other things, the voice of uh, Liquid Snake in Metal Gear. Hmm. I think by then they kind of had it figured out. Yeah, they well, they figured then. they figured out they shouldn't just have Bob from accounting do all the voices. Right. Well, was that <coughs> around the time uh, the Gabriel Knight came out too? Uh, could be, but yeah, G- Gabriel Knight is another uh, notable uh, Sierra game for how uh, good the voice acting is. Although, of course, opinions are divided over Tim Curry, but I love the guy. Yeah, me too. It's very cornball cheesy, but I grew up with it, so I guess <laughs> I tolerate it. I think it's fine. All right. Um, one other thing I wanted to uh, mention quickly before I go into my corrections, etc., was that I found, speaking of BBSing, I found a Twitter account called Ice Ads, Ice underscore ads. There were two ANSI art groups. Um, I forget whether we talked about this when I had Chris Olson on the show a couple of weeks ago. Hello, Chris. Hi, Chris. Um, there were... So basically, kind of the tenets of the the tenets of the uh, demo scene were there were coders, there were musicians, uh, there were artists. Uh, I guess that's it: coders, musicians, and artists. Um, and the artists 
often did VGA graphics, especially for the de- the mega demos themselves. But mm-hmm. uh, for BBSs, which uh, were uh, run on modems that were slow and couldn't do high res VGA graphics because it would just take too long to see anything, the menus and stuff were usually made with ANSI graphics, which are just like big blocky. Um, they're not ASCII characters, but I think ANSI is like another library of characters that computers understand. So it would just kind of draw line by line a, a whole series of colored um, of colored blocks, and that basically translated into great big pixel art. And the blocks were like tall rectangular blocks; they weren't square. So that took a lot of real creativity to uh, oh yeah to make sure that they would work perfectly. But I, I've usually... seen I've seen people do some amazing uh, things with that stuff. Oh yeah, well this this Twitter account then uh, Ice Ads. Um, there were there were two major, uh, I guess the two most successful, most populous NC art groups were Acid, which was NC Creators in Demand, and Ice, which was Insane Creators Enterprises. What a stupid name! <laughs> um, so this one, Ice Ads. Every every month, um, and, uh, Acid and Ice would release a an art pack. So they would just kind of, they had, you know, dozens of uh, artists at any one time. And the artists would put together usually one piece of art that they would put into their art pack and then release it onto the BBSs. And so there are a few websites. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I can put them in the show notes. Um, this Twitter account, Ice underscore Ads, picks one uh, nice NC art uh, every day. And it just tweets one piece of art every day. Cool. So that's become an in- uh, like a, an enjoyable new thing that I look forward to every day. So I'll gladly put that in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, um, right. Oh, and if any, if uh, any of the listeners, by the way, have any experience with um, ANSI art, I would absolutely love to uh, interview you on the show. That's something that I just uh, am aware of but was never really involved with. I did use, I think it was a tool made by the ACID group called The Draw, which was a tool ma- for making... NC art. It was kind of like the the, the most polished uh, for artists by artists kind of a mm. tool, and I just didn't have like the, the the artistic ability to do anything with it. It takes like, you know, you have to be good with shapes and shading mm. and being able to visualize something and make it recognizable in a blocky format. So I was, I, I couldn't give me all the tools in the world that I couldn't put together a good picture. Never mind yeah, the limited tools. Me neither. I mean, uh, I think the closest. I've ever gotten to doing that sort of thing is making my own maps in ZZT. Oh, ZZT. That's familiar. What is that? Uh, it's an old Epic Mega Games uh, game, which was also done in either ASCII or ANSI graphics, where you basically moved around different maps and fought monsters, collected keys, and solved puzzles, that sort of thing. Oh, I'm just looking this up. Those are definitely ANSI graphics. Yeah. Uh, oh, but but the big awesome. the big thing about that was you could make your own worlds with that and completely uh, uh, customize everything and uh, create completely uh, customizable programmable objects with the game's own uh, programming language. Wow, this is really neat. Like a lot of the maps look like um, Rogue, which just kind of represents. Monsters and objects yeah. as a single yeah. little um, ASCII character, but it also has like some like side view 3D art. Well, yeah, but uh, the game base is basically played uh, like an uh, like a top down game. Uh huh. <clears throat> and it was apparently uh, apparently sort of a successor to that called Megazooks, 
ZEUX, which uh, used a similar setup, but was way more advanced because you could even customize all the different characters uh, that appeared on the screen, and it, its capabilities went way beyond that of ZZT's because ZZT, like I said, could only do the kind of top-down gameplay with Megazooks. You could basically make anything you wanted as long as it had ANSI-style graphics. Hmm. But but it was obviously also a lot more complicated to do anything with, so I didn't spend much time with that. Mm-hmm. Nor did I ever, of... nor did I ever make anything substantially ZZT either. But I like playing other people's maps in that. Oh well, what kind of stuff did you make with ZZT? Uh, nothing. <laughs> oh, you just kind of played with the tools. Yeah, I never made anything substantial. Like I said. Hmm. Oh, this looks great. I'm gonna stick this in the show notes. What a cool game! I can't believe I'm not aware of this one. Awesome. All right. I have I have two co- uh, corrections to mention on the show this week, and they are both from you. Oh my! <laughs> One of them is uh, that you mentioned that Bloodnet is a microprose game and not an MPS Labs game. Yeah, I guess we got that wrong. Yeah, I, lo- I looked that up on Moby Games. At first, I thought MPS Labs only uh, made the different adventure games that they that they were f- familiar for, like. Return of the Phantom and all that, but they did make a bunch of other different games as well, as it turns out. Okay. But but like I said, Bloodnet was a Microprose games, not MPS. Okay, because yeah, Microprose didn't really do a lot of adventure style games either. Yeah. So it was kind of a fish out of water either way. Yeah, I suppose. So I guess it would be would be natural to get confused there. Sure. And then you also uh, gave me the correction that the Phantom of the Opera game that Chris had mentioned was actually called Return of the Phantom. Yeah. So I, I hadn't heard of either of those, but uh, I did actually find that uh, before I published that episode. I put it into the show notes, but thank you all the same for that. Not a problem. That's what that I do. It was a very attractive game. It looked really nice. Yeah, I've heard interesting things about it. Yeah, I know. I've never heard of it. I, know, I didn't know anything about it, but it looks kind of interesting. Like uh, Micro this. I mean, MPS. They uh, their adventure games. They all had interesting uh, looks to them. But from what I hear, mechanically, they weren't exactly uh, the best of the best. And mm. and in the case of Rex Nebula, you also had to deal with a lot of really uh, sophomoric humor. Uh, and bit, well, sophomore and sexist humor, right? But yeah, that, <clears throat> I I, st- right. I I actually still want to give uh, what's it called uh, Dragon Sphere a try sometime because that's free on GOG dot com. Oh, Dragon Spear. yeah, that's been free for a long time, hasn't it? Since yeah. like the beginning of GOG, I think. Since they went in a beta, they made that like a, a come come have some free games. On GOG, yeah, kind of a thing. I have that's another uh, service where I own far more games than I have <laughs> played. <laughs> You're telling me you do not want to th- know. You do not want to know how many new games I picked up during their last sale. Oh my god! I don't think I picked up a single one on their last sale. I think that was one where I've been buying old games on there. I have like very little care of buying anything but old games. Well, yeah, but you know, just games that I didn't own yet. I mean. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I kind of went nuts during the last sale, especially because they had the special offer where if you bought a certain uh, 
amount, then you would unlock certain free games. And I really wanted uh, Xenonauts, which you would only get if you spent at least $40 on there. Mm-hmm. Oh, they had Star <coughs> City 2000 on there too, I think. Yeah, that was the uh, first game you got for $10, $20, I think. I don't think I even got that one. Mm. There were a lot of games. There were a lot of games that I think I. or a lot of bundles of series that went on sale, and I had already bought them all for either full price or like a slightly discounted price. Oh, yeah. The only games I guess that I want on there are the Star Wars games, which they added somewhat recently, but they haven't mm. been on sale yet, or not for more than a dollar off or something. Yeah, I I, re- I really need to pick those up as well. Even though I have owned X-Wing on CD-ROM for God knows how many years, and I never really got into it. That's I don't think it gets any easier to get into mm. over time. Well, yeah, it's it, a true, but, simulator. But, but I never really gave it a uh, gave it a decent shot. So, well, I'm not about to lecture anyone on buying games they don't intend to play. So, yeah. <laughs> go ahead and buy it. But but during the sale, I did pick up all of the Wing Commander games because I was really itching to finally give those a try. And they, oh, right I, on! The entire series happened to be in, on sale, so I uh, de- de- definitely made use of that opportunity. Oh, right on! Have you played any of those yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> Other than Privateer One, which I actually already owned and played, so. Hmm. That I I really need to give that that game a fair try still. That game is just so hard to yeah. start You start off so low-powered that I got frustrated too quickly. And you have no direction either. No, no, but you never really get any direction other than the story missions either. And <sighs> You know, I enjoyed the game, but I quickly learned that once you have enough money to upgrade to the best ship, there's really no point in doing anything other than the story missions because... Everything you do just nets you more money that you don't really need anymore by that point. Right. And I'm sure it's one of those games where as soon as you know what's best, you kind of save up until you have the best thing. It's not like you work your way up and up. Am I right? Well, you you can already get the best things right off the bat, basically, as long as you can afford it. But Yeah, I know they're on you just they're need for to, sale in the you just first need, area. Yeah, you just need to grind a whole lot of money to get it. To get it. Right. <clears throat> so that's too bad. Yeah. But it's, it, it was still an interesting game all the same, because I never really played uh, any kind of those interstellar uh, trading sims, basically. Yeah, nor had I. I never played Elite. Uh, I guess the first one I must have really gotten into was uh, Freelancer, which is a, a very shallow game in those respects, apparently. Yeah, I briefly tried that one before as well, but I couldn't get into it for whatever reason. Oh, I love that game. I played it, I really took my time, I finished it, and I played it a few times again since. I don't know if I finished it again. It's, um, I don't think there is a way to play it widescreen. I should look into that again, but that's always kind of a deterrent for me. If it's a, if it's a VGA game or something, I, I have no problem with that, but if it's a 3D rendered game, then it annoys me when I can't play it in widescreen. Mm, I don't really care either way, but I mean... It's an older game. It's only to be expected of uh, of it that it doesn't natively support widescreen. But yeah, I'm shallow like that. Oh well. Oh well. Different strokes for different folks. But yeah, I should really give uh, Freelancer a fair shake sometime as well, considering how much I enjoyed Privateer despite its shortcomings. I like it a whole lot. I think it's still really beautiful. the The, the graphics of uh, people are kind of simplistic now, but everything else is just beautiful, and it kind of captures that like enormity feel of like space being very very large and huge ships docking 
into gigantic stations mm-hmm. always feels really cool. Even though it's got you... good automation and stuff of uh, landing and all of that, it's a it's a very uh, rewarding game, I think. And I like yeah. the uh, mouse controls myself. Even though, from what I gathered, you do have a lot of repetitive conversations with the same people over and over. Uh, you can. There's way more depth in Freelancer than I ever kind of cared to look into. You get all these, like, news stories that tell you, like, lore about the universe and about what's happening. And there's all these, like, bartenders you can talk to for gossip and stuff. I think it is very similar to uh, Privateer in many ways. I skipped most of that optional stuff because there's a lot of story. And in between story missions, you have to grind for a while to get slightly better gear or to get, like, a jump drive that will take you a little bit farther Mm. so it's a really nicely paced game actually and you kind of take your time in all these different sectors and like the skybox of uh, space in all the different sectors looks different some areas are like predominantly green and some are like red and spooky and some are like uh, purple and uh, mysterious I love that. Okay so it does sound like they did improve things from uh, Privateer where you do have basically free reign of the entire uh game area right from the beginning uh you don't have free reign of the whole game in the beginning um in the main story mode i think once you beat the story once then you get free reign of everything and that's no small task it must be like a good 15 hours or something until you finish the game Mm. um the there are like you need licenses for different areas sometimes or sometimes there's some like uh political strife or something where they say you can't go into those uh those other areas for now they kind of come up with reasons why they block you into certain areas for a certain amount of time. But uh, if you play it multiplayer, which I didn't really, then that has the whole universe wide open, and it's kind of like an MMO. I see. (laughs) Multiplayer had a huge following, but uh, I just never got interested in that, because people were so good, and there were a lot of cheaters. Yeah, that's that's, uh, most of the reason why I never really play multiplayer either. I, it's pretty rare that I'll play anything multiplayer. It's getting better nowadays, I guess, in general. But I still tend to play single player for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I have the uh, distinct pleasure of uh, introducing a new caller who left a voicemail. Uh, Tomer, G- I don't know if it's Gable or Gabel. Probably um, the latter, considering he's from Israel. I'm guessing. So uh, very, very happy to have a, uh, anyone as a listener at all, but uh, always pleased to have a new listener, and uh, I love getting voicemails from anyone at all. So, uh, uh, Tomer, thank you so, so much for calling in. Let's give that a listen. By all means. So, hello, fellow Square Fan listeners. Um, I'm, I've, my name is Tomo. I'm from Israel, and I've been sort of tracking the podcast recently. I probably came across it... Uh, listening to Joe Mastriani's Upper Memory Block podcast where uh, Square FM radio was mentioned any number of times. And, uh, you know, I've been listening to uh, sort of interleaving early episodes and later episodes. I'm still kind of uh, sinking my teeth into the show, but but so far I've been enjoying myself immensely, so thank you for running it. Uh, I was particularly interested in your uh, last episode about the demo scene, and I figured I'd chime in a little bit because that's one of the one of the many like areas of interest that I have in life. And uh, actually, I wanted to uh, I wanted to cover uh, a couple a couple things uh, which you you sort of haven't touched on, which is basically uh, the, the presence of the demo scene, and also maybe share a few anecdotes. So. Uh, right off the bat, one of the one of the interesting things is 
demo scene is actually uh, alive and well, um, and it's pretty, pretty, still pretty popular and going strong in Europe. And it's metamorphosed quite significantly over the last few years, over the last 20 years or so. Um, where, you know, back way back when in, in the 80s and sort of the, the early to mid 90s, uh, the real challenge uh, that, that probably drove a lot of people to the demo scene was a technical challenge. It, you can you can easily get stuff done, right? I mean, if you just wanted to put a pixel on the screen back in the late 80s, uh, with you know, w with pretty much any any interesting effect or you know, with decent frame rate, you basically had to drop down to either a very low level kind of C Pascal, um, or you had to go with assembler. So. Uh, the technical challenge was actually uh, really, really, really significant back in the day, and as with everything else, through throughout sort of the, the mid '90s, uh, hardware became just ridiculously fast. Uh, you had 3D accelerators, you had you know massive resolution increases, storage became faster. Everything just became radically easier. So. What, what's sort of changed in the demo scene since, since way back when is that whereas uh, years and years ago you would uh, pretty much have to struggle to do anything interesting and only sort of the, the top demo groups and uh, I recall you mentioning Future Current Triton as being sort of the, the two kind of predominantly impressive PC demo groups of the early 90s, um, they were at the top of the game. Right, and uh, the, the scene, the PC scene especially, exploded in the mid-90s, but still, uh, it, it was mostly about the technical challenge. And as things became, you know, as, as software became uh, more readily accessible, especially with the internet, and it became a lot easier to get at the sort of information that you needed, and, and guides, tutorials, that sort of thing, to, to get into the programming aspect of it, the technical challenge stopped being the focal point of the demo scene, or rather, um, it, it stopped being the only kind of uh, focal point because that was sort of the major hurdle, and instead the demo scene sort of transformed into this uh, interesting scene where it's, an, it's a bona fide art form, right? Creativity blossomed, uh, you know, starting from the, the sort of mid-90s, and nowadays uh, demos generally, I mean, some of them do, but generally demos no longer compete purely on... Uh, technical prowess and technical achievements, you know, how many polygons can you push onto the screen, uh, what sort of effect uh, have you managed to, to kind of generate from interesting math running on your CPU. Nowadays it's, it's really a creative endeavor, and demos come in all sorts of uh, shapes and sizes nowadays. Uh, conversely, there is still actually a lot, of, a lot of technical challenge involved in that, so what you have is you have you know, a certain class of demos that are basically trying to do something uh, really new and really awesome with uh, with existing hardware, even really modern hardware. You have like, you know, crazy particle effects and all sorts of really, really awesome uh, graphical effects that you, you just couldn't imagine 10 or 15 years ago running in real time in your machine, and that's awesome. Um, and then you have the class of demos that are just purely artistic. I mean, they don't necessarily have to be uh, unimpressive technically, they can definitely be, be very impressive, but it's it's just not the focus. Um, and then you have that, that third class of demos, which are basically uh, demos designed for old machines. So it's basically art running on, you know, 20, 30, whatever 
uh, your old machines. And you've mentioned uh, 8088 uh, MPH, which is, uh, uh, you know, Jim Leonard would probably tell you that uh, himself, but it was actually a very big collaborative effort between several people. Um, the, ones I, uh, the ones I know firsthand are, are obviously Jim Leonard, who's also known as Trickster, and then there's uh, Andrew Jenner um, from CRTC, who's uh, actually a really, really, really interesting guy. And uh, if you remember uh, back in the late 90s when someone made Digger, uh, the, old, uh, the old kind of dig dug inspired uh game and made it available for modern platforms well that was basically a reverse engineering effort uh by andrew who's really 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 a brilliant guy and incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to uh, old pc uh, technologies and pc hardware uh and then there's uh, another uh another guy on that team uh whose uh, whose name eludes me but his whose handle is scalzi and he's actually israeli which is which was really surprising to me and he did most of the graphics and, and some of the code uh, for that demo. So it was a massive effort. Uh, with that in mind, um, this was a, a culmination of, uh, you know, 30 years of research into how the PC operates and trying to figure out how to, how to get more out of that basically pathetic machine's hardware because the, the original PC was really just a, a big pile of crap. Uh, but then you also have really, really, really impressive productions being written for everything from the old Amiga 500, like the, the, the older OCS chipset, and then you have Amstrad demos and Commodore 64 demos. It's really a, a very buzzing um, kind of scene for uh, people interested in you know, showing off technical skills just for the heck of it. And um, one thing I wanted to, to point out is, if you want to know sort of what the demo scene is about, like why bother, why, why it exists, why people still track it, um, imagine that you could take a huge hole, fill it with, uh, you know, 500 or 1,000 fellow kind of uh, Square FM listeners or upper memory block listeners, and um, just basically have a lot of like-minded people around you, and then showcase really, really, really cool shit for the first time. So imagine what it must have been like, for instance, uh, for people kind of uh, in our scene uh, to say, watch Doom on the big screen for the first time, right? You have this massive production screen, massive speakers, a lot of like-minded people around you that are interested in, in much the same things, and then someone shows you Doom for the first time. Imagine how that would feel. Like, imagine the, the rabid kind of audience response. So that's that's sort of what demo parties are like. So when, when 80, 88 uh, miles per hour was uh, uh, was showcased on a big screen at, uh, um, oh, it's no longer Breakpoint. <laughs> it's uh, the revision party uh, in, uh, in Zalbrück and in Germany uh, last April, uh, I was actually there and it was just amazing like you could you could tell how palpably excited everyone in the audience was and it was just a massive geek out right uh so yeah i mean it's it's a niche kind of art market or, or a niche kind of artistic endeavor um but people are really really rabid about it uh, especially in europe but also in the states it's it's going live it's, uh, you know it's going strong it's so very much alive it's fantastic uh if you're at all interested in that you know, there's uh, there's a whole bunch of resources uh, that I'll uh, you know a few links that I'll I'll share with you over the email um, in which I, I send this voicemail so you can add it to show notes if you like. Um, 
yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really fantastic scene. It's fascinating. There's a lot of, you know, whether you're interested in, in graphics, music, uh, programming, or, or just plain art, there's something for everyone um, if you, you know, if it sort of resonates with you. Uh, so thank you for that episode. If you ever wanna, if you ever wanna uh, discuss the demo scene in a lot more depth, uh, I'd be very happy to. And also, uh, I can probably get you in touch with a few more kind of notable personalities because I'm, let's face it, not really, uh, not really not that knowledgeable or not really that active in the demo scene, uh, despite loving it to bits. Um, so yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for the podcast. I enjoyed it immensely, and uh, I hope to. Uh, hear more uh, of the podcast and, uh, you know, uh, start sending feedback and voicemails. So have a great day and uh, enjoy, you know, the rest of the show. Thank you. Oh, that's just awesome. Thank you very much, Tomer. Yes, thanks. Very cool. Uh, very cool uh, voicemail with lots and lots of detail. Um, I, f- I think I I knew I think I had remembered saying something in a previous episode, or maybe I didn't, and I said it elsewhere about uh, the current status of the demo scene, because I I'm kind of familiar with the same thing that uh, Tomer mentioned, the fact that uh, it used to it used to be all about doing the coolest new effects and pushing your computer beyond the limits of what it was able to do uh, ever before, until the hardware kind of caught up with it, and then it became much more about, uh, design. It's cool to hear that there's still, um, people developing for the old, more, uh, limited, uh, platforms. Oh, yeah. It's very, very cool. Um... Like, uh, I don't know if you mentioned this on your previous show or anything, but the, uh, 8088 Domination demo, especially. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, everything related to that. I think Chris might have mentioned that one in addition to 88 miles per hour. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievably impressive. And oh. uh, it's cool It's cool that they're doing like it on the Tandy and Commodore and other platforms in addition to PC. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I, um... Yeah, I never participated too much directly in the demo scene in terms of like demo, like the mega demos productions like that. But even to this day, I still often go to different websites and uh, download some of the latest demos just to see them running on my machine. Oh yeah, now. and it's really cool. I, I like the old ones on DOSBox, and I like yeah. the new ones that run yeah. natively on Windows. Um, in my uh, in my last show with uh, Chris Olson, it was episode twenty-seven. Um, in the show notes, I have a few resources where people can uh, go to download some of that stuff and check it out for themselves. You can see them running on YouTube if you want to, but there's really nothing like watching it being rendered in real time on your PC. The colors are better and the frame rate is better and there's no uh, rendering artifacts or anything like that. Yeah. I I actually went to look up a bunch of old demos uh, that I remember seeing before or after I uh, listened to the previous show. Mm Mm-hmm. Anything, uh, anything notable or anything that you uh, uh, remember vividly? Uh, among the ones that I looked up were... God, I can't fucking remember. Uh, there was one called Evil by a group called Diffusion. I think they were from Denmark, which was uh, pretty interesting. There was a very extensive... Uh, sort of like a well, first-person scene in there with uh, textured... Uh, surfaces and stuff like that, mm. kind of re- reminiscent of Wolfenstein 3D. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, textured polygons. That was a big uh, step forward. Yeah. Uh, when when that was something new. Yeah, it, it's crazy to consider just how much effort they had to put into making all of these 
complicated geometric shapes like because they had to do it all through programming and then and then some of these <laughs> sorry insane bastards went the extra mile and made morphing shapes like i can't ima- oh, yeah. i can't imagine how complicated that shit uh, must have been because you know regular programming goes over my head already this is like m- sorcery Oh, that's right. I, I wish we could see um, demos of individual uh, effects just to kind of increase our vocabulary of what video rendering is all about. Because this is where I learned a lot of that stuff from the demo scene, and it's all woefully out of date yeah. now. But I just remember um, seeing demos kind of graduate from flat-shaded polygons to fong shading, which was kind of like a gradient oh, yeah. and was good for round objects, and that went into... Um, Oh, flat fung and what was the other one? Gorad. Oh, gorad shading. Thank you. That was it. Mm. Um, which uh, kind of made things look a little bit shinier and rounder. Yeah. That, uh, thanks for the save. No problem. Yeah. So um, I, I would love to see something like that. Uh, that's current. That kind of gives examples of different shading and effects. Yeah. It's and stuff like that. It's funny, actually. I haven't really been keeping up with the uh, modern demo scene, but I remember years ago. Uh, <laughs> This is actually going back to the previous topic when I was on the show, but I bought a PC gaming magazine that came with a CD-ROM, and that had a bunch of modern uh, demo scene demos on it, hmm. including one I distinctly remember called Melrose Space, <laughs> mm-hmm. which you know didn't really have a whole lot to do with the show, except possibly they may have used some samples from the show in the music, but it was a really uh, impressive-looking demo as it was. Oh, cool. But it, was a, uh, but it was one that ran on Windows, actually. Huh. Oh, that's pretty recent, then. Yeah. Relatively speaking. Yeah. That's neat. Well, I forget whether I mentioned this one, but um, there is one from several years ago now. It might have been ten years ago already. Um, it was by a German group called Farbrausch. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. Sorry, Germans. <laughs> um, but they had one called Debris. Um, which it ran quite slowly on my PC at the time, and the next time I upgraded my PC, it ran very, very smoothly and was absolutely drop-dead, knockout gorgeous. I think the download was like 10 or 15 megabytes or something, but then before you can run it, it like does this... um, it does some kind of calculations to make these procedurally generated textures so that the 15 megabytes of data uncompresses to, like, one gigabyte. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the, another the thing you're really so damn sharp. good at. Oh, it's amazing. It's just astonishing. Uh, and it's a gorgeous, a really gorgeously designed uh, uh, demo that has, like, urban settings. It kind of looks like Half-Life 2 a little bit. And then these kind of... Um, uh, geometric uh, shapes like uh, cubes and stuff, like millions of cubes flying all over the place in these weird kind of seagull flock mm. patterns. Awesome. Like organizing and disorganizing. It's very, very cool. And it has a cool kind of minimalistic techno uh, soundtrack as well. So that's yeah. debris. I'll stick that in the show notes. Yeah. I actually just remembered, uh, also related to the demo scene, it's not around anymore, unfortunately, but I used to hang around a site called Nectarine. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Oh. That's not around anymore? No. It was the um, music streaming yeah, site, Yeah, exactly. It? Oh, that's right. I think they got changed into something else, and it's called, like, Orange Juice Radio or something now. It could be. I never I never bothered to check what actually happened to the site, but I used to hang out there all the time, li- just listening to all the awesome tunes that were on there. 
they always had amazing uh, mod music playing. Yeah. Yes, yeah, scenemusic.net slash demo vibes. Oh, there you, there you go. Radio, still around. Awesome. I used to listen to them all the time. Yeah. It's, you're just guaranteed to have phenomenal music absolutely any time you ever check it out. It's yeah. a great, great site. But, you know, you know, usually I just prefer listening to my own uh, extensive music collection, but... Yeah, I somehow stumbled upon that site years ago, and I occasionally went there to just, uh, you know, have a good time listening to that kind of stuff. Especially when they played, they uh, also had included a bunch of music from games like uh, Dune, as I recall. Hmm. That was always uh, great to listen to. Hmm. That's a good one. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah, I I actually, right actually going back to Tomer's uh, voicemail for a minute. When he mm-hmm. when he uh, mentioned watching Doom on a big screen, I thought he said Dune. Oh right, as in the movie, or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, so I, I, I was kind of wondering to myself, like, uh, okay, I I'm not one of the people who hates that movie, but I can't imagine a massive crowd, you know, being that excited for it. <laughs> oh sure. Well, it's some, I, I can only imagine what a demo party must be like. I'd love oh, to yeah. go to one sometime, if only. I but I've so. never. I've never been to one. I can't imagine what it's like either. But you know, most of the ones that uh, are always being held uh, around Scandinavia and uh, places like that. Yeah, you and trolls are probably geographically closest to where these things occur. Well, yeah, but troll, trolls is a lot closer than me because he lives in Denmark. I live in the Netherlands. Right, right, of course. But you don't <coughs> have an ocean between between you and the events, at least. Sorry. You don't have an ocean between you and the other. Uh, it, it might as well be. <laughs> I guess. It's still pretty far. Uh, yeah, so, before we get to our topic, I was wondering if you'd like to tell us what you have been playing this week. Oh, do I ever. Oh, good. Let's hear it. Well, the most significant thing that I've played recently, which you've probably uh, saw, heard me talk about on Twitter, was Alien Isolation. Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, tell us what you think about that one. I tried that one. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, for a good friend of mine, actually, uh, Frederick, a.k.a. Little Norwegians, who doesn't listen to this podcast, but I wanted to say hi anyway. <laughs> anyway, he was actually uh, raving about this game for a good number of months. Like, oh, my God, this is so scary. and Oh, this is so faithful to the movie. But for the longest time, I couldn't play it because my PC wasn't up to spec and I didn't have a PlayStation 4 either. It is a pretty power-hungry game, isn't it? Yeah, but on my current PC, it runs smooth as butter. 60 frames per second all the way through. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I actually happened to pick it up because it uh, happened to be on sale for like 12 euros plus uh, all the DLC. So hmm. I figured, why the hell not now that I can run it? And I played it, and oh my god. I, uh, you know, movie licensed games, or licensed games in general... You know, uh, come a dime a dozen, you know? Mm-hmm. They're usually garbage. Yeah, but this one, the the people in charge of this, they cared. They really cared. They looked at the first movie, and they made a fucking game out of it. And they did it with a lot of love and a lot of uh, attention to detail. Because... They nailed the look and feel of the movie. Like, the set design, it has the exact same uh, retro-futuristic kind of feel to it. 
That's such a unique art style, too. I really love that. Oh. Everything looks kind of like 1970s, 1980s exactly. vision of the future. Yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. Like you have CRT monitors with blocky uh, graphics and computers that have hard drives that audibly hum when you use them. Oh, yeah. I love the sounds. A lot of blinky uh, lights everywhere and a lot of pipes and steam. Mm-hmm. Tight corridors. That sort of thing. It is absolutely beautiful. And with the lighting as well. A lot of dark areas or with limited light. or, But very atmospheric. A lot of great shadow effects. A lot of uh, clutter to make the uh, environments look like they're really living Oh, yeah, as definitely. Well. It's set, it kind of tells a story. Yeah, it's set on this... Uh, Space station where basically all hell has broken loose. The AI has gone berserk. There are killer androids running about. People are, you know, have turned on each other trying to scavenge uh, living supplies. And of course, there is a big, big old alien running about that nobody can see him to kill and is popping up everywhere, killing people left and right. Mm hmm. And uh, did you uh, did you finish it? Oh, I definitely did. And <laughs> you know, I've played scary games before, but oh my god, this game sent me into hysteric paranoia, especially halfway through. When uh, okay, when okay, it's it starts out pretty slowly. I have to admit, because well, when you first arrive on the station, you know you're still kind of uh, learning the ropes, trying you know uh, collecting items and crafting uh, different devices and weapons and. Okay, at first you kind of have to sneak around the different uh, humans you encounter because they're trying to kill you. Then you encounter the alien, and it's a whole different ball game because the damn thing will stalk you everywhere. You need to run and hide from it. If it catches you, you're dead. It's uh, simple as that. You can't kill it. You can only scare it off or slow it down a little. So you're constantly playing cat and mouse with the damn thing. <laughs> and the freakiest thing is it learns. It learns your patterns, so you have to... Really? You... Can you uh, give an example of that? That's terrifying. Well, uh, that's what I read anyway. I didn't really experience a whole lot of it myself, but from what I heard, if you hide a lot in lockers, it will start to check lockers a lot more off. Oh, shit. I didn't hide in lockers myself that much, but I did experience one thing. At a certain point, you get a flamethrower, which you can use, uh, which you can use to scare it off, because you know it doesn't like being burned. Obviously, you can't kill it that way either. But it'll it'll at least make it run away, so it'll leave you alone for a little while. But if you use the flamethrower enough times, it'll get cocky and it'll be like, "Oh yeah, you're gonna burn me, but I'm gonna still come after you regardless." Because oh, wow. I, I know you're not going to fucking kill me with that. <laughs> so it, it, gets, uh, it gets pretty uh, harrowing. And beyond that, there's some really nasty surprises later uh, down the line as the story progresses that... Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm obviously not going to get into that, but it took me a lot of effort and courage to get through certain parts of the game, let me tell you that. But it was really satisfying to get through it all the same. Well, that's great. I couldn't get too far in it. I, f I found it very stressful to play. Mm. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Like, I didn't even... 
I, I knew that there was an alien in the game, of course, but I didn't see it. I didn't get that far. I didn't even know that there were uh, androids in the game, or if there were, then I can't tell them from humans. But they're just enough jerky humans kind of chasing me around and stuff. Oh, no, the, the androids are actually really distinctive because they don't look like the androids that you uh, would know from the Aliens movies that look exactly uh, like humans. Because, okay. Uh, the station employs a cheaper model of androids that look like mannequins, basically, and have really raspy... Uh, menacing voices oh cool they 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 are kind of funny in how they shout uh kind of different safety related messages to you like running causes accidents when you're trying to run away (laughs) from them Mm -hmm. but they they're they're also they're also really annoying though because uh, they're really hard to kill uh they require like six shots to the head if you once you get a revolver hmm and all your resources are so scarce. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm not big on crafting myself. There was so much crafting in the game, it seemed. And, like, well, I, 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 I like hold so way, many I like resources. Way, I like the way it's handled in this game because you have a limited amount of resources and you can only hold so many of one uh, certain type of item. So you kind of have to make strategic decisions how you make use of the different materials you find to uh, proceed. Right. Oh, that just uh, that just kind of added to the stress I was feeling from hiding from things, and yeah. I would always curse myself when I allowed myself to get injured because it meant that I would probably have to craft another healing kit or something. Yeah. But what if I need those resources for something else five minutes from now? That's true as well. But uh, you know, it, it did kind of help that I played on the easiest difficulty. But even then, the game really uh, got frustrating at certain points where I just kept getting caught by either the alien or the androids or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I played it on the easiest <coughs> as well. I'm not big into stealth games myself, which is another reason why I didn't get too much into uh, the Metal Gear mm. series. No, I can see that. Yeah, whenever I'm given the option to either do stealth or something else, it's pretty rare that I go with stealth. But yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, this I'm game, usually of that mindset. I'm usually of that mindset as well. But you know, it can be really satisfying to pull off uh, stealth successfully, especially in a game like this. Hmm. There were were some really tense moments with the alien where he got really close to catching me, but, you know, using the materials at my disposal, I did manage to uh, come out on top in the end at the last second. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, those experiences are always so memorable, and you don't know whether it's scripted or if it's something that just kind of happens by chance often. So I read uh, read a really good article, I think it might have been on Gamma Sutra, Mm. uh, um, by one of the designers of the game, who was talking about the save system? Oh yeah, that, that's oh, which that's is really really that's unique. Really, that's really diabolical, actually, because you you can only save in the game when you find certain stations. But you have to then put in your key card. But it doesn't uh, instantly go. Do you want to save? No, you have to wait for three little lights to go out before it'll actually let you save. And while the lights are going out, you're still completely vulnerable to any kind of threat around you. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, so this article was really good, talking about how it used to be something else, and then people would exploit it so that they knew they could just run to a save yeah. point, and it didn't matter if they died, because then they could just come back. Exactly. And so, I don't remember all the details anymore, but I'll uh, link to it in the show notes, um, so you actually, where they talk about yeah. all the different iterations. So, when when you want to save, you actually have to be really uh, perceptive that there aren't any thre- immediate threats uh, around you, or otherwise you can still get killed trying to save the game. That's right. I just love the tactility of that save thing too, like the console. As you say, you have to like 
put your key card in, you have to like, do you like turn something and you have to hold it there or something like that? Yeah. You actually, it keeps you engaged the, while you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, the, the way the game immerses you into the into the character you're controlling is actually really good as well because you can const- you can always see your arms and legs moving uh, while you're doing stuff. Right, and the breathing and grunting and stuff yeah, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a, a important aspect for horror games, I think. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I like the protagonist as well. She's not a you know a badass commando or anything. She's just an ordinary woman caught in a really nightmarish situation. She's trying to uh, you know make the best of it and escape alive. Yeah, I guess just like the movies, the badasses tend to die first. Yeah. So leaves the ordinary people to save the day. So that makes you feel very vulnerable. Yeah, but either way, I really enjoyed the game. But afterwards, uh, after finishing the main storyline, I figured, you know, I spend enough time being scared, so I opted to leave the DLC for another time, and I moved on to something happier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Oh, so what did you try next? Uh, what did I try next? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, after that, I actually replayed the first uh, Quest for Glory game. Mm, which one, the EGA or the VGA? Uh, EGA. I played that. Mm-hmm. I played that a, a number of times already, but uh, that's my favorite version. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually wanted to uh, get to playing the other games already because uh, I've beyond the first one, I don't think I've ever played uh, any of the others to completion. Hmm. So I wanted to make. Yeah, me too. Actually, I wanted to make a start. But you know, it's it's still a really very enjoyable game, except for the fact that there's a lot of grinding. Yeah, there is. Which uh, which class are you playing as? Uh, I played as a magic user. Oh, right. So, yeah, uh, co- uh, co-host Chris, that was his experience, too. Played as the magic user, and you have to kill and kill and cast and cast and drink. Yeah, and drink. except at the very beginning of the game, you can't kill shit. Yeah, that's right. No, you yes, have to even, cast even the we- other even, things, don't you? Yeah, even the weakest yeah. enemies like Sauruses or Goblins, they basically drain... Like three fourths of your health before you can finally kill them, so you have to spend a lot of time resting and healing up again. Uh, yeah, before I finished the game with cheat codes, this was actually my first time playing the game through legitimately. It was mm. and it was really uh, challenging, but at the same time, it was also uh, also pretty challenging to actually you know pull all this stuff off finally. Like uh, you remember the bit in the cave with the cobalt. Yeah, the sleeping yeah. kobold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to steal a key from him to uh, free a bear in the next room. But right, you know, if you're a fighter, you basically uh, you can't do it stealthily. You just have to fight the thing until it dies, and you then grab the key it leaves behind. If you're a magic user, you use the fetch spell to get the key from him while he's sleeping. If you're a thief, you sneak up on him and you slip the key away from him. But Considering I was such a crappy magic user, he would constantly wake up whenever I tried to use the fetch spell to get the key from him. So in the end, I just resorted to ki- uh, to killing him. But that took basically every bit of magic and health that I had at my disposal and a lot of saves coming to prevent being uh, insta-killed by his uh, magic projectiles that he shot at me. Yeah, I remember that guy being hard no matter who you are or how tough you are. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of not really supposed to kill him unless you're a fighter, I guess. But you can, and I love that about the game. Yeah, it is cool that uh, for a game that old, they did have a lot of uh, alternate uh, puzzle solutions depending on your class or just your play style. But yeah, I I love that it even accommodates you playing like a hybrid class. 
where you can have elements of different classes and play the game like that. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, a lot it uh, it is annoying that certain uh, ways to play the game require you to grind up your stats a whole lot, especially near the end of the game. Although I yeah. uh, I didn't actually have a whole lot of trouble with the end game, despite all that. Yeah, I think the biggest, I think probably the hardest fight is like all the brigands. Oh no! That, like that. Yeah, you can actually bypass that if you go by the uh, back entrance to the brigand hideout. Oh, is that when there's like a troll or something you fight instead? Well, you you can fight the troll, but you can also learn a secret password that you can tell the troll so he'll leave you alone. Oh, I don't think I ever found that. It's uh, when Neat. it's when you go to the uh, archery target like uh, in the afternoon, and there's a couple of brigands hanging out there, and you can uh, eavesdrop oh, on them. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, maybe I did know that, but then I forgot it when I needed to use it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I finished that, and then I got started on Quest for Glory 2, and I immediately quit again because I remembered how much I hated the alleyways the in that game. Oh, the map <coughs> is just terrifying. Yeah. There is a remake. Yeah, I um, actually played the remake. The official one? It did, oh, yeah. It didn't help. It's a little better. No. It did. It, well, they had two different kinds of controls, as I recall, for the map areas. Yeah. There was like the old kind and like. Yeah, but I, I still. I, it's very confusing. I, I can't tell uh, what was different about it, but I still ended up getting lost horribly. So I just gave it a miss for now, and I'll come back to it some other time. It's. Hmm. But it's, if I'm remembering right, I think the two modes were one way has you like if you turn left then it changes the screen so that you're actually looking forward now. Like, if you're going north and then you turn west, then uh, it changes it so that's, like, in front of you, uh, uh, up is west. Whereas uh, it had, like, another mode where north is always up, so you can go okay, left, left, I, left, I, left, and you're always I had it set to that, yeah, but... Makes it a little easier, but it's still a very yeah, confusing, very large... There's still map. a lot of uh, wandering about to be done. Yeah, so I've heard amazingly good things about that game, but that's uh, kind of insurmountable for me. I have trouble getting past that. It's like the driving in some of the police, police quest games. <laughs> yeah, too frustrating. Yeah, so in, so instead of that, I actually got started on Techno Babylon. Ah, uh -huh. considering really uh, you were kind enough to give me a Steam key for that. Oh, that's right. Well, it was uh, Ben Chandler who provided that. Thank you and hello to Ben. And thank yeah, you. Thanks uh, again. Thank you for uh, sending in the voicemail, which oh, no. I earned it for you. Not a problem. Oh, so how do you like Techno Babylon? Uh, well, I'm not that far into it yet, but what I've seen so far is really damn good, but that's to be expected from Wajidai. Mm -hmm. uh, although the only other Wajidai game I've played so far was Resonance, which technically wasn't really one of theirs. They only published it. It was made by Vince12. Well, Wajidai right. did, did still have a significant uh, contribution and all that. I, I don't know. Did, did they just publish it or did they uh, you know, co-produce it with Vince 12? I don't know exactly. Uh, they might have provided some assets or something, or at least uh, bug testing or something. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I should know this considering I listen to the Blue Cup Tools podcast, but yeah. Yeah, Ben and Francisco would know. But yeah, Techno Babylon is really good so far. It's a really, uh, really dark grim sci-fi cyberpunk story with some really interesting elements but also you know it, it you know it's not all dark there are some uh, good light-hearted parts to it as well with the banter between the two uh, cops that you play as mm -hmm. or at least you know you play as a cop and he has a partner 
they have they have a lot of funny uh, dialogue between them, but there are some really uh, blood, uh, yeah, bloody scenes uh, that you encounter sometimes. Yeah, there are some graphic and kind of fun animations. Oh yeah, some shocking stuff. But you know, the, the puzzles are interesting considering you know the different sci-fi concepts that uh, the gamer uh, revolves around, like the the wetware. Mm-hmm. And I also really liked uh, this uh, puzzle, er- well, dialogue puzzle early on, where you have to talk down a suicide bomber, and you can, you know, kind of take the diplomatic approach, or you can decide to use force. Yeah, that's right. I appreciate that about the Wajidai games. Yeah. how they often have more than one way to get through a, a puzzle, and I, I actually appreciate that they have achievements for those because it helps you remember what you've done and what you have yet to do. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I took the diplomatic approach, and it worked out right off the bat. So I'm kind of proud. Uh, proud that I managed to figure that out. Well, that's great. There are actually quite a few uh, rewarding and different dialogue puzzles or dialogue related puzzles mm. in that game. There's some really good puzzles. I enjoyed that one a lot. That's a very good game. Yeah. And terrific sci-fi themes and it continues to get darker mm. as it also remains lighthearted in many ways. Well, I'll, uh, I'm sure I'll find out as I go along, but you know, the art the artwork is great as always. Mm-hmm. Also thanks of course to Ben Chandler. Mhm. Yeah, great art and great animation. Oh yeah. Yeah, nice sense of presence in that game. I, do, I did enjoy spending time with it. Yeah, so I'm uh, curious to see how that'll unfold. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you've been playing? Uh, not a whole lot else. Uh, like I said, I'm, I mentioned uh, Euro Truck. I've been playing that a whole lot. Mm. So that's uh, one of the games I mostly play when I'm listening to podcasts like this one. Oh, cool. Yeah, I usually listen to podcasts when I'm really driving. I only fake drive for fun. Oh. <laughs> That's when we usually listen to the cheesy German radio sh- stations and stuff like that. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to spend that time, actually. I don't know why that never occurred to me. I could listen to more podcasts if I was Euro trucking. Yeah, well, I uh, like to uh, have something to do and lo- something, you know, uh, not too intense if, uh, to do while I'm listening to that kind of stuff so I can pay attention to what I'm listening to while also, you know, keeping myself occupied. Sure. Does that game hold any special significance for you since your city and your the surrounding area are represented in the game? Or does uh, it seem mm. so different and alien and summarized in the game? Uh, well, my city isn't really represented in it as far as I know. Oh, I thought you were in Amsterdam. <laughs> no, I live in uh, Limburg, oh. which is in the south. Oh, I see. My mistake. Ah, well, you uh, you couldn't have known, but uh, from what I can tell, the map is really uh, some well, basically just a summary of all the important parts of Europe as it is. Otherwise, you would really spend hours driving from one point to the next. Mm. But you know, yeah. you know, it's uh, interesting all the same. You know, it's re- it's uh, relaxing to just kind of uh, uh, cruise around, and see all the sights, but at the same time, it's also challenging to you know do all the to do your work properly without any incidents and you have to keep track of uh, you know not uh, not going too fast you have to uh, maintain your uh, 
you know, rest from time to time so you don't get too tired. You have to gas up and keep your truck up and running. Right. What uh, controller do you play with? Uh, My keyboard. Oh, you do? Okay. I don't have a steering wheel or anything like that, unfortunately. Yeah, me neither. I do it with a gamepad. I think I tried it with keyboard and it was fine. I don't even know why I picked a gamepad. I think so I could lean back and play it, actually, mm. is why I picked the gamepad. It wasn't any better. Mm. I could just be lazier. Oh, well, makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. I figure trucking is all about having a comfy chair, which I <laughs> sort of do, I guess, but it's comfier when I can lounge in it. Mm. It still has more buttons than I can assign to my gamepad, though. That game has a lot of buttons. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, well, that's good stuff. That's that's a good list of stuff you got on your roster there. That's everything that you played this week. Well, not not necessarily just this week, but uh, in general lately. Recently, sure. All right. Well, me, I uh, mentioned Binding of Isaac already, which I enjoy as always. Um, I've also been playing Jetpack Joyride huh. on my uh, smartphone, uh, uh, which is. It's by Half Brick Studios. I've mentioned this on the podcast once before. It's kind of an endless runner sort of a game. And a one-button game. I have such respect for games that can be played with a single button. And it's not like it has controls plus one button. Like, the only control is one button, and that's all you ever press. Okay. So it's a very well-designed game. I was was thinking for a minute it might have been related to the old uh, Jetpack shareware game for DOS, but apparently not. No, I don't think so. That was more of like a platformer kind of a game, wasn't it? I don't know if I played it, but I've seen screenshots. Um, this one, no, it's just like you're always going to the right, and the longer you stay alive, the faster you go, and you have to dodge these uh, like buzzing laser zapper things, so, which are like stationary obstacles. Kind of like Flappy Bird. Yeah, it's a lot like Flappy Bird. It uh, predates Flappy Bird, but that's another endless runner. Oh, I see. It's It's got a lot in common with Flappy Bird, I guess, in that you kind of control how whether you go up, and then you sort of fall down on your own. And you have to get through obstacles. Yeah. Um, you also have to collect coins, and I guess the most engaging thing is that you always have three, uh, like, sub-quests uh, to do at any one time. So it might be, like, have three close calls with uh, laser zappers, or have four close calls with missiles, oh. or uh, there are, um, there are like, these little NPC scientists running along the ground every now and then. So it might say, high five, 50 scientists. <laughs> And so you just run past you run past them, and a little uh, it makes a little clap sound, which is really cute. So the art is excellent. The, the your guy looks really cool, and there's a huge variety of uh, jetpacks you can buy, and they're all cosmetic. Uh, all the updates that you buy are cosmetic, except for um, these like coin magnet things, because mm. you you have to fly over coins to pick them up, or if you buy coin magnet for uh, your guy and for your vehicles. Uh, then uh, they kind of get sucked to you if you're in uh, proximity to them. So it's kind of an endlessly fun little game. You can play it for 30 seconds, or you can play it for 20 minutes. Um, I played it uh, also... I play it predominantly on Android. There is, like, a Windows 8, Windows 10 uh, App Store version, and that's a really nice game to play full screen, like, with your space bar instead of tapping your screen. Because when you tap your screen, you kind of cover up something that you'd rather be Yeah, seeing. I have the problem with a lot of Android games. Yeah, me too. I have a lot of thumb, I guess. So yeah, me too. It gets, gets in my way. Uh, it was nice to play that on PC. Sadly, the PC version is like the the oldest, least updated version. Oh. So they've, in recent 
uh, I guess in the last year or so, they added this like cloud account so that you can play the game on many different accounts and keep your progress. But the last time I tried the PC one, they hadn't integrated that yet, which is too bad because um, it's a game you can play for free or you can pay them if you want to for like little cosmetic things or coins or whatever. And I love the game, so I just paid them two bucks to turn off ads or something. But then when I went to the... I did that on the PC version, but then when I went to the Android version, it uh, didn't register my purchase. Oh. So that was a shame. But that's okay, because I rooted my Android phone and put in an ad blocker anyway, so... <laughs> I'm stealing a game I bought, if that makes sense. Naughty, naughty. So I know. That's, that's Jetpack <laughs> yeah, Joyride. I'm, I'm one to talk on that subject. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last game I'll talk about that I played was one that I just bought... It's a Steam game, but I bought it on GreenManGaming.com because uh, they had uh, 23% off. Oh, yeah. Um, it's they have some, a game called... They have some pretty nice deals there some, uh, sometimes. Oh, yeah, they often have good deals. I always check Green Man Gaming to see whether they sell the Steam version before buying something on Steam. Because Green Man Gaming always has very aggressive sales. They have like a very low profit margin, and they get a lot of uh, more business for it. So I really like that site. Um so I bought a game from them called Hacknet, hmm. which is quite, it's a brand new game. It's quite similar to Uplink or many other uh, hacking kind of games where you're sitting at your computer terminal and you have to, uh, there's a kind of an overarching story with incremental uh, objectives and you have to hack into computers and delete files or copy files or sabotage things. Um, I've got maybe about an hour or so into uh, the game. Uh, it's a little different from Uplink. Uh, very little different from Uplink, I guess. It's it's very, very similar. But Uplink is all mouse-driven, where all your elements are on screen, whereas Hacknet, some things are on screen, but some things you have to type into your console, and it uses a lot of Linux commands, like ls to do a directory list, or cp to copy, um, or if you want to see what, uh, what uh, network ports are open, you have to type nmap, and then they make up some other... Uh, commands too. There was one called uh, hack port, which hacks into like a TCP port. Um, it's uh, kind of neat like that. Sometimes it doesn't really make sense that some things are clickable and other things have to be typed. Sometimes it'll put the same information on screen uh, in like the main area as well as in the console area. Like the right hand side of the screen is uh, kind of emulates a, uh, a, a command line console. Um, but uh, overall, it's a good time. I'm not too far into it, so nothing's gotten too complicated yet. I did do one stupid thing where uh, there were two files, um, config.sys and config.sys.txt. And uh, the txt file says, uh, don't delete this file because you'll screw up the system. And so I deleted config.sys.txt and then wondered why it wasn't why I wasn't passing the mission, when in fact, I guess, obviously, you have to delete config.sys, not the text file telling you about it. <laughs> so the writing was a little bit ambiguous in what you were exactly supposed to do. But uh, it's the kind of game that rewards you if you have some knowledge of Linux or of command lines or stuff like that. Oh, I'm sure you can learn it in not too, in not too much time otherwise. But uh, it's, a, it's a cool game, and uh, there's more uh, optional story, it seems, so far than Uplink. There's little text files that you can read on people's computers, and it kind of shows chats that they've had, private things, and emails, and stuff. Emails between a guy and his dad. It's kind of neat like that. Right. So I think it cost me $6 with a discount. It's uh, 8 or 9 brand new. It's a good one, and I do recommend it. Oh, it sounds interesting. Mm. So, there have been a lot of these kind of hacker games as of late. 
Like uh, yeah, they really have. Like, and I don't know if they're very different. Like uh, TIS one hundred, uh, I think was mentioned on the last show. Yeah, that seemed. I don't know if it's a hacker game or a programming game. Well, it's kind of a similar premise in at any rate. Okay, I can see that. And uh, there was another one that a friend of mine mentioned playing a little while ago called I think Hack and Slash. Oh, that was. Um... Is that the uh, Double Fine game? I'm not sure. I'm looking it up on Steam right now. Yeah, Double Fine. You're right. Yeah, this... Uh, I don't know if it's any good, but it had a great premise. Something about... It's like a an RPG or a platformer oh, yeah. game or yeah. something, but every now and then you can like change the parameters of something in-game, and you can make it so that like a guy with a million hit points all of a sudden has one hit point. I only saw. Uh, uh, it's been a while. I only saw a, uh, uh, a trailer for it, and it sounded like a great premise. But yeah, I see the uh, Steam rating gives it six out of ten, and Metacritic gives it yeah. uh, three and a half out of five. So it sounds kind of average. Well, well, he mentioned it uh, was kind of interesting, but I don't know if it would necessarily be my kind of game either because I'm not much of an RPG player. Me too. I kind of feel like I want to. I want to give Double Fine lots and lots of money, though. So I'll probably buy it eventually. Nah, maybe, maybe, Fine. but nah. Well, they made a Linux version, so good for them. Yeah. Not enough of that. Oh well, that's all I've really been playing. Uh, all of that's uh, of note, anyway. Mm. So why don't we? Uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, move along to our main topic uh, this week? Oh boy. <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming up with the topic, Akago. Uh, the the topic that uh, you had suggested and I like very much is guilty pleasures. So what a fun topic this uh, <laughs> this can be. Um, I can start this one off perhaps with. Um, oh, there were two. I got two responses on Twitter. Actually, no voicemails or emails about this, but I got two responses on Twitter about guilty pleasures. Oh. So one uh, one comes from Antonimity. Uh, who says his guilty technology pleasure is that he doesn't like having to email a response when he could just reply to the tweet. And that's the whole thing. He tweeted that to me. So thank you, Antonimity. Oh, that's great. It's not, not, not really <laughs> like anything that I uh, was thinking of, but in, in, interesting exactly. response nonetheless. That's right. And uh, we got one from Chris Olson as well, a tweet, who says uh, his is Tecmo Bowl for the NES because he kind of cheats his way through the game with only four plays, uh, two runs and two passes. Tecmo Bowl is a fun game for NES. That was an American football game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing that tweet, actually. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a great example, I think, of, uh, of a guilty pleasure, cheating your way through the game with uh, uh, a few commands that work every time. Okay, but, yeah, the, th the things that I was thinking of are more like you know, games or movies or whatever that weren't necessarily considered good, but that you still enjoyed for one reason or another. Oh, sure. I've got a couple of those, and I have some other definitions of guilty pleasures as well. But uh, why don't you go ahead and go first? Oh, boy. Well, I've made quite a list, but I think I'll boil it down to, in general, uh, there are a bunch of FMV games that I kind of like. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, FMV games, you know, during the 90s, there was this big craze of putting uh, live-action footage in your games, which generally resulted in games that had, you know, little to no gameplay and a lot of crappy acting and stuff like that, with some notable exceptions. But 
Uh, some of the more popular ones were actually made by a company called American Laser Games. Oh, yes. Who put out uh, laser disc arcade games like Mad Dog McCree, Crime Patrol, Drug Wars, The Last Bounty Hunter. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, you know, mo- uh, they kind of mitigated the problem of gameplay by just turning the game into a standard uh, on rails arcade shooter with live action footage. Yeah, that's right. They're kind of like the Duck Hunt game for yeah, exactly. NES, I guess. They're kind of like Dragon's Lair meets Duck Hunt. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, the, that's right. That was, they, uh, they had yeah. some pretty cheesy acting overall, obviously, because, you know, it's not uh, Shakespearean uh, acting troops or anything that, that they got for these games. Not quite. But I, and in fact, uh, Mad Dog McCree, uh, they're. I don't know if it is still or used to be PC Gamer's lowest rated game of all time. Oh, wow, really? They gave it 4 out of 100. Wow. Um, and they I remember reading this one in the magazine, but they've got it on their website too, so I'll put this in the show notes. Well, the funny thing is, back uh, during the late 90s or whatever, I had a friend in school who owned the original DOS version of that game, and I borrowed it over and over because I enjoyed it so much. I do too. <laughs> Honestly, I really like that game. Yeah, it's ridiculous and stupid. I think you can finish the whole thing in like fifteen minutes if you know what you're and I think doing. It even had a, didn't it even have a cheat mode that made you invincible or something? I don't remember. I never played it that way anyway. But I, I, I find it I find it strangely enjoyable. You know, it you know, like you said, it's a short game. You can play it in short bursts, just shooting at FMV cowboys and whatnot, mm-hmm. and watch well, you know, watching all the ridiculous. Uh, Action bits. Yeah, it's very, very cheesy, but I have a. It has a real special place in my heart. Yeah, and I actually watched a bunch of arcade uh, playthrough. Well, or or at least playthroughs of all the, these different games on YouTube rather than playing them myself, because unfortunately, I found that the games that I do own don't uh, run on Windows Seven anymore. Mm. But. Uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for these games uh, in terms of the production values, actually, because uh, I don't know if they used uh, pre-existing sets or whatever, but the uh, you know the set uh, the set pieces for these games are actually pretty elaborate at times. Like, yeah, they look like a movie. Yeah, and they have the costumes and everything. Yeah, costumes. Uh, they have stunts. They have pyrotechnics. You know, uh, there's some bits in Mad Dog McCree too, or uh, well, the the last bounty hunter where some buildings completely blow up and it's all practical effect. It's not CGI or anything, so they must have stuck a lot of uh, money and effort into that. Yeah, right. Those are things that they have to do in one take, otherwise they yeah. waste a lot of money. Or, or exactly in the last bounty hunter, there's an extended sequence where you know the whole uh, all of these games are from the first person, and uh, you're just walking around the town and bad guys pop up left and right. And you have to shoot them and the camera keeps moving throughout all that. So they had to shoot all of that in one take. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the DOS version might have taken some shortcuts or maybe it was just Mad Dog McCree that was made in a different way. But it seemed like people would kind of pop out of a random yeah, that, that, window that's and what, it, it wasn't continuous. Yeah, that's what most of the games uh, like that were like where it was just a static scene with people popping up in different places. But... So uh, as the games you know went on, they kind of got more elaborate like that, where you had uh, constantly moving scenes like uh, the one I just mentioned. Mm, well, that's cool. 
But, you know, yeah, because they were arcade games, they were also kind of meant to uh, suck suck out your money. So there were some really cheap shots, like you shoot one guy and you think he keels over, but then he gets up again and uh, tries to shoot you again, so you have to shoot him again before he shoots you. Or really, really annoying. There's a scene in Mad Dog McCree where you approach this uh, ranch... You know, two cowboys approach you, one of them draws his gun, so you shoot him. His buddy draws his gun, you shoot him. You think, okay, I killed everyone. And for a few seconds, nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, bam! Gunshot from a window to the left where that you totally did not see. And then uh-huh. you just die because you had to shoot that guy before he shot you, but you couldn't see him, so... Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, I will say... That those games, if you can get the very rare opportunity, they're more fun in the arcade. Just because you really do have to aim. Yeah. In the in the, the PC versions, you have like a big red crosshair that's your mouse cursor, and you drag that around the screen. But when you don't know exactly whether you're aiming correctly, that kind of gives it a little more excitement. And they had really big screens. Yeah, I suppose, but I unfortunately never had, never encountered any of those uh, games uh, in the wild, as it were. But we don't, we don't. I don't know if they exist anymore. Yeah, we don't have a lot of arcade uh, arcades as it is uh, in the, in the Netherlands anyway, which is which is oh, a shame. Yeah. Did you when you were little? Uh, were there more occasionally, of them? there you know there were some places like this. Uh, uh, well, there, there's this big. Uh, par- uh, park that we used to go to that had a small arcade with a bunch of different machines like Final Fight and Afterburner uh, and so- some uh, anime conventions and such have uh, arcade machines whenever they uh, whenever they're around and me and my friends actually went to visit uh, an arcade that's still running today in a town that's like two hours from here Yeah, they're pretty rare to find uh, in Toronto right now, that's yeah. for sure. But it's actually funny that you mentioned that, because for whatever reason, in some scenes of these games, you can actually see Mad Dog McCree machines in the background. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a, like, there's a scene in Mad Dog McCree 2, actually, where you go into a saloon, and you see a bunch of cowboys just playing a Mad Dog McCree machine in the background while the action uh, is going on in the, uh, in the foreground. That's awesome. Yeah. Completely out. Well, at least comple- they embrace their silliness. Completely out of place, but you know it's uh, still a funny little uh, thing to uh, to notice. Oh, that's great. But any other uh, American Laser Games uh, titles that you like? Uh, well, they're all pretty much the same, but you know they are. Yes, but you know they all have kind of their own appeal, like. Uh, Maddox McCree is a uh, cheesy western, and then you have uh, what was it called? Who shot Johnny Rock? Which is like uh, 1920s yeah, it's like uh, gangster stuff. Yeah, gangster stuff, yeah. Some really weird villains that are all themed after diseases for some reason. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I played that one. That's pretty. Yeah, funny. you have Lockjaw Lil, who always talks through clenched teeth because Lockjaw. <laughs> you have Measles, who has red spots on his face because he had an accident with acid, apparently. Mm-hmm. You have Mumps, who has big cheeks. Mm-hmm. And Pox, I think. Yeah. <laughs> they were really creative uh, in that regard, I suppose. That's funny. Kind of Dick Tracy stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Now that you mentioned that, I suppose they might have been inspired by that. Hmm. But you know, these games had a lot of different ports over the years, and a lot of the early ones were annoying because you know the blocky graphics did sometimes made it hard to see whether there was even anything moving on the screen because a lot of the uh, a lot of times you would have enemies popping up way back in the background. You know, to make it harder to shoot them, I suppose. But because the video compression was so crappy, you could barely see anything going on back there. Yeah, that's right. I don't even remember if it was any better in the arcade. I mean, there was no such thing as HD screens Uh, back then. They did have high-resolution, like, computer monitors, I guess. Oh, yeah, but... but, uh, uh, I think it was a projection TV or something that they used. Could be, but the arcade machines were actually streaming off a Laserdisc, so the video quality already was a lot lot better than the home releases that they could uh, produce at the time for, like, PC and Sega CD and all that. But a lot of those games were uh, uh, re-released over the years for uh, modern systems by a company called Digital Leisure. Right. So they uh, ported a lot of the games over to modern versions of Windows and also on uh, DVD video, actually, so you could just play it with your DVD remote. Mm-hmm. That's right. I don't know I don't know if the American Laser Games one worked with the DVD remote, did they? Uh, cer- certain of them did, actually. Oh, wow. Because I know the Dragon's Lair and Space Ace and the yeah. games like those did. Yeah. That's really something. Th- those games were really special in their own way because uh, just uh, the effort put into the animation. Yeah, oh, they, yeah. They were, real, they were just really dazzling to watch. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not a whole lot of fun to play because when it came down to it, all you did was just push the stick or hit the button at the right time or else you died. Yeah, that's right. Which is basically what a lot of FMV games to boil down to because of the limitations of the format, I suppose. Yeah, unless they do something else, like it's not an arcade game. If it's an investigation game or something, then you don't have to worry about doing things before a timer runs out. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> that's all these, these games really were. But there was one game uh, of that caliber that I actually also really enjoyed a lot called Brain Dead 13. Oh, yeah, made by... Was that made by 7th Level? Uh, no, that was made by uh, ReadySoft, which actually, uh, who actually ported a lot of the uh, LaserDisc arcade games like Dragon Slayer 2 uh, PC and all that. It's DOS, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, okay, Braindead 13. That was an original game, an animated one, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it had a very different style from Dragon Slayer, obviously, because it wasn't made by Don Bluth or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it was also a lot more cartoony and wacky uh, was set in this haunted castle where Matt Scientist uh, was uh, is uh, going to unleash his doomsday device to take over the world but it breaks down so he calls this uh, computer engineer to come and fix it and it turns out well it turns out to be this really obnoxiously oblo- obnoxiously uh, radical 90s kid with a huge orange mullet and a backwards <laughs> baseball cap and, of course, he figures out Mad Doctor's plan, and uh, then he gets chased around by, this, by his uh, Igor-like assistant called Fritz, who has hooks for hands and is carrying around a whole arsenal of weapons underneath his uh, cloak, basically. And he chases Fritz around the castle, and, I, I mean, Lance, that's what the protagonist is called, chases him around the castle, and so wackiness ensues get into all sorts of into all sorts of weird situations with different monsters or enemies and 
It, yeah, it boils down to the same Dragon Slayer formula. Press the button, the right button at the right time, or else you die. But was it any more forgiving since no. it was like a console? No, not, it not in the slightest. Like save points or anything? Well, you could you could save uh, at any time basically, but it uh, would reset you to the beginning of the scene that you were at. Okay, so if you couldn't pass something, you couldn't save scum it as you know. But mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't uh, unique in the sense that there were actually different paths you could take because as uh, when the game begins, you're running through the hallways of the castle and you can. To choose different paths at certain intersections to visit different rooms. Okay. And there are basically four different bosses that you have to defeat before you can make it to the final scene of the game. Oh, so you can do it in whatever order you want? Is that Yeah, it? pretty huh. much. But there are a bunch of optional rooms that you don't need to visit to beat the store or anything, but... You know, if you get caught... Uh, if you end up in one of those rooms, you have to finish the uh, scene in question... To, make it through alive before you can go anywhere else. Hmm. But yeah, but yeah, the ga- the game is really uh, I don't know how I figured out this game as a kid or how I even had the patience to run through it because uh a lot of the times the things that you have to do to uh, make it through a scene in one piece don't always make sense. Cuz Oh, so you you die, and you try something else. You die, you try a third yeah, thing, and then you have to just pretty, remember that that's pretty the thing much. You but did. the thing is, in Dragon Slayer and Space Ace, uh, you had a helpful thing where when you had to do something, you know, part of the screen would flash to indicate, you know, this is where you need to go. This is what you need to do. But oh, there's right. nothing like that in uh, Brain That Thirteen. So you just kind of have to guess when you're supposed to do something. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. Plus, there's the fact, you know, well, you, you just have the directional keys and the enter button, which is your uh, all-purpose action button. But what action can be differs from scene to scene. Like, one scene, you'll kick a monster in the face. Another scene, you have to duck under a obstacle with the action button. Another scene, you have to avoid an oncoming enemy with the action button, which other times you would simply do with the directional keys. Oh, that's irritating. Yeah. I seem to remember there was a an FMV game. I think it was Cliffhanger, which was oh, yeah. uh, that was based off of an anime. Lupin um, the Third. It might have been a. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and it had up, down, left, right controls. It was exactly yeah, like and, Dragon Slayer. And hands and feet. That's right. It had two action buttons, which is just infuriating. Yeah. I, so if you have to cheese people, at least you give them only one. Button. Yeah. I actually tried that game on an emulator once. It was weird. It's yeah. They just took a movie or they took a TV show and they turned it into yeah. a game. And it's just a bunch of like completely random scenes with no context and no continuity and no point. Yeah, pretty much. It's just like jumping and driving and exploding and climbing. So it, it, you can just watch the show and see the same stuff. Exactly. It's really cheap, and it had horrible voice acting in it, the English dub. <laughs> I got really obsessed with uh, FMV, the Daphne emulator. Oh, yeah. Me, it's me, called. I got really obsessed with Yeah, me, me for too while. for a while. I actually hung out on this site called Dragon's Lair Project, which was all about these different Laserdisc titles like Dragon's Lair, Space mm-hmm. Ace, Cliffhanger, all that stuff. Oh, that's right. Me too. Well, there was one game on that website, Dragon Lair Pro- Project, DLP. Um, one game that looked amazing to me. It was called Cube Quest. 
and it's really, really rare, and it had a very unique uh, cabinet. I think there were two different cabinets, but one of them was like a sit-down cabinet that looked really, really uh, kind of round and wonky. And there were a very limited number of this these titles released. They talk about it in depth on the No Quarter podcast. Um, I'll stick that in the show notes. But um, it's a game where... It's like a shooter game, sort of like uh, Tempest, I guess, where... Um, you can like move your you you can move your it's behind your spaceship kind of a view and you shoot at uh, guys that are coming towards you so it's a really weird perspective and a little difficult to control but between or in the background um, in the background and during these cutscenes are these incredible psychedelic um, animations of like traveling through tunnels and tubes. And sometimes they have, like, twinkling lights flying past you, and sometimes it'll, like, explode into butterflies in this beautiful forest. Yeah, yeah. You can. So I got a, 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 a ROM of it with all the videos somewhere. It's, like, 14 gigabytes or something <laughs> like that, the rips from the, the uh, Laserdisc. And it's a really hard game, but it's so beautiful. It has such a cool uh, narrated intro and very, very interesting kind of proto-techno music. Yeah, from the early '80s. Yeah, I recall they made a lot of those. Well, they made several of those kind of uh, arcade shoot 'em ups with FMV backdrops, where it was, you know, it played like a regular uh, 2D shoot 'em up, but with fancier graphics, basically. That's right. Kind of makes it look better than it is. It wasn't really much of a game. Yeah, but I recall uh, one of those actually. I don't remember what it was called, but apparently one of those games used f- footage from Star Trek Two, where the the footage where the Genesis torpedo hits a planet and it terraforms it, and they use that as a backdrop for one level in one of those games. Oh wow! Fully licensed to use it, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Oh neat! Well, I definitely have a soft spot for FMV games. Yeah, me too. I actually completely forgot to uh, talk about, but Brain Dead Thirteen actually had has a lot of really bizarre and uh, sometimes surprisingly gory death scenes. Because hmm. when, when you're just running around the hallways, you know, if you don't do anything for a couple of seconds, you immediately get killed by Fritz. But every time you get killed, it's a completely random animation. Like, you either just get torn in half by him, or he pulls out a flamethrower and he turns your head to ash and he blows it away. Cool. Uh, or... <laughs> He puts a blender over the protagonist's head, and he turns it into a smoothie, and he drinks it. <laughs> now, this looks like a kid's game. It really does. Like, the art style looks kind of like Saturday yeah, morning cartoons. Yeah, it does, but in there, there are some really surprisingly gory deaths in this. There's, no, there's not really any blood or anything, but occasionally, you know, there will be some, like, yellow or green mucus uh, coming from uh, Lance's body after he gets killed. There's one really uh, nasty death in particular where you go into a library and there are these, I guess, giant bookworms uh, uh, kind of going around. And if one catches you, it burrows into Lance's chest, bursts out through his back. All the while he's crying out in pain as it happens. Lovely. Yeah. I'm just going to look this up on Wikipedia. It says that the rating... Oh, the wait, rating isn't on Wikipedia, but there's a picture of the boss... Sorry, of the box that says K to A. Yeah, kids to adults. 
kids to adults, ages six plus. That's interesting, considering your description. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. But uh, were you you going to move on to a different game, or? Yeah, let's do that. Sure. Uh, shall I mention one from my list? Sure. Okay. Well, I gotta mention this one first and foremost, because this is probably the most shameful game of all time. I'm talking about Postal 2. Oh, boy. <laughs> have you played this I one? I have. I, this is a horrible game. It's very antisocial. I love this game. Uh, it, it's it's very like, mean-spirited, is what it is. It's quite mean-spirited. But it's it's zany and unrealistic enough that I never I was never offended by yeah, it. Yeah, me neither. And they really try to offend a lot of people. Well, they, it's they like, do it kind of tongue-in-cheek, I suppose. They do. Some people took it really seriously, though. But, I mean, it's like misogynistic and homophobic and racist and yeah. and just all-around antisocial. There's, like, horrible things you can do at any moment at all for really no provocation at all. Um why don't I go into detail about some of the horrible stuff you can do? <laughs> so, I guess, first of all, well, the, the premise of this game is that you're just some guy and you have to run some errands. And so, your your mission for the day might be uh, get some milk from the supermarket or mail a letter at the post office or return a book to the library. Or get your petition signed. Get the petition signed, that's right. <laughs> so, um... These are, for the most part, just completely ordinary, everyday tasks that you have to do. And you're in this kind of open-world uh, town of paradise, is what it's called, um, where everyone sort of has a bit of a chip on their shoulder, and every now and then somebody is armed. <laughs> That's probably about as much introduction as I need. Yeah. You amass this unbelievably huge arsenal of creative and terrible weapons, especially if you buy a more re recent version of the game, which has uh, expansions that added more weapons and allows you to uh, collect them earlier in the game instead of at the later levels when the expansion starts. Um, so you start off... I guess the, the coolest thing you start off with is your own fly, kind of in Space Quest 4. Uh, or no, in um, it's not Space Quest. It's in, like, uh, Legion Suit Larry's. Yeah. You can unzip your fly and pee on stuff. And, like, it's like physics-based uh, liquid dynamics pee, where you can, like pee on people and pee on the on the walls and pee in the air and have it land on you. That's how you actually, if you catch on fire, you can pee straight up and it lands back on you again and you can pee the fire out. Um, there's like machetes, there's, there's shotguns and axes, there's uh, rifles and machine guns and pistols and everything. Everything. The best ones are the machetes, I guess. And anything with a sharp edge on them, because you can kind of hack pieces off of people, and they run around horrified, spurting blood. Yeah, you could just you, uh, bash them in the head with a shovel. You can. Oh, yeah, you don't just bash them in the head with a shovel, you kind of clang them in the side of the head, and their head kind of plops around like a soccer ball, <laughs> and rolls around on the floor, and they have this spout of blood coming out of their neck. If you uh, kill somebody in a rather public place, then the other pedestrians might throw up. <laughs> And they barf all over the ground, and it kind of dribbles and runs down hills. Yeah, they don't need a lot of and provocation for that. They don't. And if you decapitate someone while they're barfing, then the barf kind of shoots out of their neck hole. <laughs> it's really sweet. It's just lovely. So, the, the claim in this game is that it's not a violent game. It just has violent people playing it. 
which is such an interesting thing to say, because, I mean, of course they give you all these horrible things you can do. You have, like, a foot where you can kick people and stuff. Um, but uh, they, they claim that you can finish this game without hurting anyone and without being violent whatsoever, which gets tricky because, I mean, even though you have everyday uh, tasks that you need to accomplish, you'll get to the library and there will be these, like, book-burning, violent uh, protesters who want to who light the building on fire and want to kill everybody. Yeah. So really the best way to do to get out of there is to kill them before they kill you. But I suppose maybe it's possibly potentially uh, doable if you want to run past them and hide around corners until they go away and maybe you can get out of there alive without killing anybody. Yeah. Maybe not. But, it's kind of a stretch. But that's no fun. It's no fun and that's not why this is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> This is a guilty pleasure because the guilty and innocent alike wind up chopped up like a salad on the ground <laughs> whenever I walk past them. You can just walk down the street chopping people's hands off as they're walking down the street. Just I don't know. It's it's great. It's very therapeutic. It's sort of a wish fulfillment. Not a wish fulfillment, but it's just like a fantasy. Mm. Do, do things you would never possibly do anywhere else sort of a thing. And there's all these great urban locations like shopping malls and and uh, post office and supermarket and uh, it's uh, I don't know it's just ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous yeah it it is kind of glorious in that sense but I suppose where you can just go around and do whatever do horrible things uh, that sort of thing but uh, I remember playing it years and years ago and I kind of uh, got stuck at one point because you had to grind up some money to buy napalm or something. Mm. But I also, I also remember ha having a lot of frustration because, you know, enemies with guns, they basically never missed a shot. So yeah, it, pretty it much. got really uh, frustrating to stay alive during, those uh, f during firefights uh, because... Uh, I don't think there were a lot of ways to heal yourself either. So I was I always ran around with low health, uh, as I recall. There's actually one fantastic way to heal yourself, and that is by smoking a crack pipe. Oh, which is a pretty clever mechanic, honestly, because you smoke the crack pipe and it gives you a little bit more than your maximum health. I think maximum health is a hundred, and it gives you like a hundred and thirty health. Um, and then over the course of time, like your health meter is like a human heart in the corner. And uh, over the course of time, your heart starts beating faster and faster and faster and faster as you start feeling withdrawal symptoms from not having smoked crack in a while. And then, kaboom, you lose this big chunk of health uh, yeah. just because you healed yourself by smoking I the think, crack. I think, them, which is an yeah, thing. I think that might have happened to me as well. So it never, you never see it coming, and it can kill you. Or it can reduce you to very little health yeah, if you're not but I, I, careful. Otherwise, you can heal by eating fast food and donuts and stuff. You can like go to a police station, and the chief of police has like huge stacks of donuts oh. all over. It, donuts, stacks of donuts and money all over his desk. I don't think I ever did very that. Very cynical that way. Oh, it's too I, funny. I, That's but yeah, the, I, the I tried yeah, try to avoid tried to avoid getting uh, caught by the police and all that. Of course. Oh, there's actually a mission where you have to get into the police station. Uh, I forget what you do there. You have to pay a parking ticket or something, but yeah. uh, it's hard to do that without killing every police officer in the whole. Yeah, place. I, rem I remember there was one uh, boss that I had to fight with low health, and I just had to keep keep safe scumming uh, to avoid getting killed because I had so little health, and he kept hitting me with every shot. So, 
Yeah, it's an open world game, so the safe scumming thing does become a necessity sometimes, because I think the world kind of resets when you walk out the door and walk back in again, except for your wanted level, which is sort of the uh, Grand Theft Auto style, I guess. I mean, you're either wanted or you're not, and you just wait for a while until it goes away. Yeah. So other than your wanted level, I don't think anything persists between levels. People will be alive and well again when you uh, leave and come back. So I honestly do recommend this game. Unbelievably, it must be like a 15-year-old game or so by now. Yeah. And they've been patching it like crazy. They've added new expansions. They added, I don't know how many Steam achievements, maybe like 100 achievements. <laughs> They're really actively supporting it. It has Steam Workshop support now, too, which I haven't tried, but you can import weapons and characters and stuff from other games or made by the community, so that's always kind of yeah, fun. Yeah, and they even made a completely new bit of DLC uh, that they released a while ago. Yeah, that's right. I don't remember whether I've tried it. It's really the original game that I like the most, and I don't even care if I play it all the way through, which mm. I have, but... Uh, I only, I only, it's the kind of thing I want to play for yeah. a few minutes. And I only it. ever played the original vanilla release without any expansions or anything, so maybe that may have uh, influenced my, my enjoyment of it as well, because it was... I, I think I don't think I uh, got any patches for it or anything. Mm. Maybe they uh, maybe yeah, they balance things out a bit more as time went on. I don't know. Not too much, I don't think. But may, maybe they did. I know they they vastly reduced the loading times between zones, and they allowed you to uh, have way more pedestrians in an area than ever before, mm. which is always <laughs> fun because sometimes two people will bump into each other, and one of them will shoot him for being mad at him, and then the cops will start chasing him around, and the cops have bad aim, and they'll shoot another person, and you're running for your life just because there's this huge all-out brawl between pedestrians and cops going on all over the place. Good, clean fun. Yeah, definitely. If, yeah. You, uh, if you're if uh, you in the right mindset for it. That's pretty much what it takes, yes. Oh, well. Uh, what have you got next on your list? Okay, another significant... Guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, are you familiar with visual novels at all? Yes. Well, in case the uh, people listening aren't familiar, well, basically, uh, visual novels are a genre of games that originated in Japan. As the title suggests, it basically is an interactive story where you kind of read along uh, with what happens, and at certain points you can uh, decide what uh, what path the story will take. There have been games like this, like the Phoenix Wright series, which is more, well, kind of an adventure game, but very linear, as if visual novels tend to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the Moon is a really good example of that. All, but that's also a really linear one where there aren't really any multiple paths or endings or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned one on the show before, Digital A Love Story by Christine Love. Oh, yeah, that could be. But, you know, I there are a bunch of different games in this genre that I really, really enjoy because they had some really well-written plots with a lot of replayability because of the multiple paths and endings, like uh, games like Tsukihime, Fate Stay Night, uh, Ever 17 was a really get- damn good one. I actually did a short review of that on my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, but the thing about most of these is, well, most of these don't get released outside of Japan for one important reason. They have sex scenes in them. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing that m- most of them are marketed uh, around, you know, they're called eroge or erotic games. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And even in some of the better ones, like I mentioned, you know, you have a very good plot, but which occasionally gets interrupted by a very out of place sex scene. And what is it out of place? Uh, in some of the games, it is because okay. yeah, it's it's kind of expected of this genre in, uh, to have these kind of scenes in them, I suppose. But it get it kind uh, kind of distracting in some cases. But one of the games that I really enjoyed, but there's also a very gross offender in this regard, is one called Desire. Uh, was actually one of the few few that was actually released overseas. I got an official English translation and all that, but it obviously wasn't very popular. But somehow I actually got a hold of it and played it, and I really, really enjoyed it. But not without some uh, serious caveats. The plot is basically you're a reporter named Albert McDougall who is given a special permission to come to a to an island called Desire, which is somewhere in the middle of the ocean and is a top-secret research facility where they're doing some kind of secret research that nobody knows anything about. But, you know, he's allowed to come over to the island, interview the uh, researcher, and uh, have a tour of the facilities and all that. And as it happens, his girlfriend, named Makoto, uh, is actually a researcher on the island. Of course, he's happy to finally see her again because they don't spend a lot of time together, because she's always wrapped up in her work and all that. Uh, but shortly after he arrives, he finds this little girl washed up on the beach, and there are a bunch of mysterious things going on in the island, and of course it becomes a matter of what's going on there, what are they researching, uh, what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, you meet all these different characters, with some of them with shady motives, that sort of thing. And it's actually a really good... Uh, kind of mystery that builds up over the course of the game. But you have to deal with a lot of shit to get to the good parts. Because the protagonist is an unbelievable chauvinist. Because mm. every single uh, female character that he comes across, he hits on. And he pretty much has sex with all of them before the game is over. Except for his girlfriend. Of course. He shamelessly cheats on her with every single piece of ass he comes across, which gets really, really aggravating. Now, how is the uh, translation in these games usually? Uh, It depends. It differs from game to game. This one wasn't too bad, but you can tell, because the game still has the original Japanese voice acting, they did take a lot of liberties uh, with the... uh, Dialogue in certain places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, how do I put this? The one of the first sex scenes that happens, all of the dialogue is in rhyme. <laughs> like that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it. You have to wonder what the hell they were smoking when they came up with that. It, it's not necessarily funny, but it's just <laughs> one of those things you're uh, seeing the whole thing going on, and you're like, what? That's very odd. Yeah. But one of the interesting things about the game as well is it has, uh, well, you... 
Well, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's on another one of these games that's completely linear. All that you do is just uh, click through all the dialogue, and occasionally you get to choose a different location to go to, but you just have to choose the right location to go to to trigger the next event and see how the story unfolds from there. So you don't really make any other decisions to to influence the course of the story or anything. But oh, So people usually just engage you in conversation when you get to the yeah, right place? Yeah, pretty much, and different events unfold as the story goes on. But uh, the interesting thing is you get to see the story from multiple perspectives. So you start out as Albert, and once you've finished his scenario, you then play as his girlfriend. So you see things from her perspective, and obviously a lot of things get revealed to, to her that uh, Albert didn't find out during, during his story. So things that, think, things that you think you thought you knew during Albert's scenario suddenly get turned on their head, which is pretty interesting. But Makoto's scenario is also one of the hardest things for me personally to get through in any game I've ever played because there is a major subplot in her that involves her being blackmailed and sexually abused by a co-worker. Mm. And... There's really not really a whole lot of purpose to these scenes other than shock value or, I guess, titillation as far as rape scenes can be titillating. But I personally didn't see the appeal, obviously. The worst thing is, this is kind of a spoiler, but by the end of the game, or by the end of her scenario, she suddenly realizes, oh my god, I'm in love with this person. Oh, what, the abusive co-worker? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And he's like, well, yeah, uh, some couples do this kind of thing to show each other how much they love one another. Yeah. Yeah. And then he ends up uh, sacrificing himself to save her life, so kind of redemption, I suppose. And then in the epilogue, you see her with uh, the child that, uh, their, their love child, basically. That's quite something. Yeah. But I, but despite all of that, I found the story really to be worth all of the hassle because the <laughs> okay after Makoto's scenario, you have you unlock a third scenario, which in the main menu is marked question mark question mark question mark, and once you got through that, you get another huge twist that I was like, whoa, okay, that explains everything. Hmm. So that that was all worth it uh, for me personally, and you know it's a it's a really good looking game as well. It was originally released on a Japanese home computer called the PC ninety eight, but mm. then the uh, Windows version was actually com- uh, completely remade from the ground up with higher resolution uh, backgrounds and character sprites, and complete voice acting everywhere in the original Japanese, awesome MIDI music, like one of the best soundtracks I have ever heard. Uh, I actually downloaded a couple of albums. Uh, I made my own recording of the MIDI music after I unlocked the uh, sound test feature in the game itself, and afterwards I downloaded the official uh, arrangement album, which uh, redid all of the music in kind of uh, better with better instrumentation, I suppose. So that was okay. uh, really cool to listen to. And there's actually a lot of animation in the game as well, because these visual novels, they tend to be really static. Like I said, basically, uh, most of the time you just have uh, 
hand-drawn ba- just portraits. Yeah, hand-drawn backgrounds with character sprites pasted over them, which occasionally change to reflect their emotions or something. But in this game, you have a lot of animated cutscenes to show certain important events. So that was actually pretty impressive as well. Yeah, I guess those were added since the original uh, PC-98 version as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of them are are oriented around sex in this genre. Yeah. But, uh, not all of them. Not not all of them, fortunately. And uh, Ever 17 in particular is one that had uh, no sex scenes whatsoever and had a really awesome plot as well. So I highly recommend that one if you're at all interested in the genre. Desire is also one of the better ones I've played, but obviously uh, go in knowing what to, what to expect. Right. Well, my wife and I played one together once, just for laughs. It was a super sexy uh, version of Phoenix Wright. Oh, God. Phoenix Drive? I don't remember what it was called. I've, I've, been I've read a few things about that. It was really gross. Yeah. It was just very silly. Um, it was really poorly... Uh, poorly translated. <laughs> That's being kind. Uh, it was like really awkward phrasing, and there were some times where they either attempted some kind of a North American colloquialism, or they just totally mistranslated something from Japanese, but you don't know what on earth they're saying. And the other person gets like totally turned on by it, and it makes no sense to the reader. Uh, the most memorable things from this... This was many years ago, so I don't remember very much about it, but I remember two things. One thing was that in the heat of passion, the characters would often uh, say to each other, huffin' puffin'. <laughs> as, if, as if they're, like, <laughs> exasperated and breathing heavily. But it was like, H-U-F-F apostrophe N, P-U-F-F apostrophe N. That was extremely hilarious. Huffin' puffin'. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, the it's, other... it's a pretty common thing in Japanese media to kind of have those... Uh kind of sound effects or onomatopoeia as they're called for all these different kind of effects I guess but uh, translating them literally yeah that can lead to some uh, unintentional hilarity like that it definitely did the other the other memorable part I kind of hesitate to to regale but I guess for the for the sake of uh, being interesting in a podcast, I guess I have to say it. It was uh, when uh, Phoenix Wright is uh, at the uh, peak of his enjoyment uh, with uh, his several uh, lovers. Uh, he kind of squirts and squirts and squirts and squirts, and there's like an animation of him squirting away. Lovely. But but uh, there is also dialogue on top of that, and the dialogue goes on for like a good five or six minutes while he is like continuously spurting away so that's uh kind of copious yeah <laughs> so it was a little unpleasant and i'm glad to have shared that with you all but uh yeah th- there... that, that was not one of the finer examples of the yeah th- there's this whole weird subculture in japan as well where they take these pre-existing uh franchises and make hentai or fan games like that out of them. Oh, that's called... Do- uh, Dojinshi. Dojinshi, yeah. 
or DJ. My wife taught yeah. me about that. She's a huge anime fan. Not not necessarily all doujinshi is all about sex or anything. Like there's there's plenty of the doujinshi that are just kind of fan stories or whatever. But yeah, it's pretty notorious for this sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm. So this was a horrible example. <laughs> um, the only real other games that I took seriously of the genre were by uh, were by Christine Love. Uh, who's a game designer from uh, here, from Toronto. She, oh. The first one was Digital, A Love Story. Weird, I always thought she I've, was Korean or something. She, um, her her games are about Korea, a couple of them, like Analog Hate oh. Story, which is the sequel to, so I guess it's a sequel to Digital, A Love Story. It takes place uh, not in Korea, but like with people with Korean names that are on the like, oh, okay. Korean spaceship or something like that. That makes sense. Um yeah, she's interested in that uh, as, That as a setting anyway. Um, so Digital Love Story, which is all kind of about 1980s BBSing and stealing long-distance extender codes uh, to call long-distance You can see where the appeal lied for you. Oh, <laughs> totally. And the amazing thing was that she's not old enough to have actually been oh. there, but she did incredibly good research. Oh, wow. And uh, does an exceptionally good job of capturing the feel of all of that. It does take some liberties, but for the most part, it's very, very uh, true to form. I'm really impressed. I was um, astonished when she told me that she didn't actually do that stuff right. personally. I, I was, could have sworn that Interesting. she was. Interesting. I've been hearing a lot of uh, good things about those games over the years. I really need to check them out. Well, Digital Love Story is free, so you really should check oh. it out. It's like, well, if you play it slowly, it'll take about two mm. hours. Uh, I really love that game. And it's actually got like a touching... I don't know if I'll call it... Well, I guess it's a love story. It's right in the name of the game. But uh, it's a it's a very touching story. Mm. Um, and really cool from a sci-fi standpoint. So I, I love that game. I played it at least twice. Um, another game by her that I played, but I could not finish, was called Sorry Babe, it's, But This Isn't Your Story, or something like huh, that. Interesting title. Um, and it's a game where you are uh, a teacher at a high school, and there's just a bunch of like angsty teenager stuff sort of going on. Um, I don't remember it well enough. It's been a few years now, but you have this, uh, there's this like social network, like Facebook sort of, and for some reason, it's like a school social network, I guess. And you as the teacher have the ability to read everyone's private messages. And so in addition to like the real time, uh, goings on of the game, every now and then your phone will buzz and it'll be like one of your, uh, students sending a Facebook, uh, message to each other. And it gives you a little bit more context about the things that they're saying to each other in class or why their behavior has changed. Mm. And the reason I couldn't finish this game was that it was too sad. Mm. It is a very sad game at the end. Um, Really, really touching and very personal. Um, And the story just kind of got under my skin. Yeah, yeah, I kind of had that with To the Moon as well. Hmm. I don't think I played that. I think I own it and haven't played oh, it's a, it. It's a really uh, good story. Very emotional as well. I, 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 did, I did actually finish that one, but yeah. The, uh, like you said, it's very emotionally draining in that way. Mm-hmm. And you kind of allow yourself to get into that position when you play one oh, of these games. Oh, yeah. They're, they're often very long oh, games, yeah. and you do... Nothing but like, and there's often no narrator, so it's nothing but getting to know the characters personally. Or well, the protagonist tends to be the narrator in these kinds of games sometimes. Right. 
Yeah, so it's a genre I don't have too much experience with. I think I tried a couple of other ones, but they were so badly translated from Japanese that I just couldn't, didn't mm. want to give them the time. But uh, there's a lot of merit, merit to them. Oh, yeah. As long as you have the patience for lots oh, of Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's also cool to see uh, that uh, there are a lot of fan translation projects that have cropped up over the years to uh, translate the ones that haven't been released uh, overseas as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always nice to see that. As long as they do a good job of it. I hate when fan translations are poor. Yeah. Because on one hand... My wife and I had this discussion the other day. On one hand, fan translations are like the most amazing thing that can happen. Because if you're not going to sell your product in a foreign country, then like let them go ahead and let them at least pirate it or at least get the, the subtitles for it because they're not going to be able to consume that media anyway and that's going to create a market for you eventually, if not today. So the fan translators have done a lot of really cool uh, innovations. I think it was the fan translators who kind of taught the uh, anime studios how to do subtitles hmm. um, where in terms of like when to give sound effects or when to even pause a movie to like a video to uh, give some cultural backdrop on what some colloquialism means or why somebody says something the way they do or how uh, a phrase is a double entendre in Japan but in Japanese but not in English that's all really interesting stuff that kind of brings you closer to the source material and to the people who wrote it and to the culture that it's oh, yeah, that's true and and they also have technical things, like, I love how a lot of anime have white subtitles with a black background. It's like a black black type with white type, type that's a little bit smaller on top of it, so it looks like a drop shadow. That means that no matter what color is in the background, you can always read the text. And that's something I saw first in fan translations. Mm. So, as is often the case, uh, piracy is uh, a, a great way to further... Um, legitimate content through innovations and customer service, I guess is a way. To yeah, I've, uh, I've done a lot of a fair amount of fan translated anime myself over the years as well. Some of them do really good, uh, good work with that uh, kind of stuff. Some do, yes. All right, uh, whose was that? That was yours. Shall I do the next uh, one? Yeah, sure. All right, I'll do a quick one this time so we can get back to you. Um, I have just a scene, one scene from one game as one of my guilty pleasures, and this is a really guilty pleasure. The, um, the game I'm talking about is Max Payne 2, oh. which is one of my favorite games of all time. It's just a masterpiece of a phenomenally fantastic Oh, definitely. Game. I've played it a zillion times. I've finished it a zillion times. I probably know like every enemy around every corner, but I don't care. I could play yeah. it infinitely. And sadly, that's one of those games that does not have a proper widescreen mode either, but I'll forgive that game because I just love it, it so much and it's so terrific. I, I, think, I think the Steam version was at least uh, patched out. You can, you can do it in widescreen, but it's stretch widescreen, so everyone gets really tubby and okay. wide. Yeah, it's not a proper widescreen, which is just uh, it's uh, tragic. I, I don't, th I don't think I uh, noticed much of that, but that could just be me. Oh, it's pretty dramatic. It's like people are stretched to like double their mm. width. It's pretty close. Anyway, uh, um, you, were, you were saying. Well, anyway, yeah. there's there's this one scene in the game which I don't know how I don't know how this ever came to be. I don't know how this was a thing. Well, I guess I do know how. And they mentioned this. I, I the one thing I remember from PC Gamer's review of this game, which was very true, was that it's really fun to play with a physics engine. Oh yeah. Game. I don't know. I think it uses the Havoc physics it does. engine, which uh, they they kind of likened playing this game to like being Jerry Lewis. <laughs> 
in a movie because you're just like running around bumping into stuff for no reason and it's like plopping all over the ground you're like knocking over glasses and tables and tipping over chairs and stuff like that just because you can oh just yeah the physics engine was such a new thing and you want to exploit it and have yeah, a good time I love that it. as well <laughs> so that physics engine also applies to um, dead bodies and so there's this one scene in the game, pretty close to the beginning of the game, where an old lady invites you into her apartment. And she's like a kind of a senile, um, a senile old lady uh, who's kind of like uh, in dementia. Uh, but she offers you some like painkillers to heal yourself in some sanctuary against the bad guys and has a little conversation yeah. with you. And at the end of your little interaction with her, she stands in her living room, which just has a couple of uh, sofas and a table, and there's art on the walls and stuff. Um, if you piss her off, she pulls out a uh, she pulls out a gun and kills you. I think. Well, she, I don't she, know. It's been she a long was already time. carrying a shotgun when you came in. Oh, is that it? Okay, thank you. Good memory. Um, and she she gives you guns as well, as I recall. Um, so one thing I just love to do is to kill this poor innocent old woman in any way possible. You have this huge arsenal of guns in your pocket and you have a slow motion button and she's just standing there begging you to shoot her, right? That's what, that's what innocent old ladies do in video games. Maybe to you. (laughs) Maybe to me. (laughs) Okay. Well, so I actually found a video of somebody who did the same thing over and over and over which makes me feel a whole lot better about myself because at least there's two of us maniacs. But I would save my game, and I would blow this woman away in some form or another, and then I would reload my game, which kind of resets it. Then, somehow by accident, I found that if you throw a grenade at this woman's feet, she'll kind of careen way up in the air in this kind of beautiful arcing rainbow (laughs) and land somewhere inside of her apartment. And so I kind of made it a game to try to get her to fly through the air from this explosion from a grenade and kind of land reclining on her sofa. And this usually took a good, like, 40 or 45 tries or so. And so often I would save my game right before she was going to say something, like, hoodlums. And so she'd say the word hoodlums, and then I'd blow her up with a grenade. Just over and over and over and over. This is my guilty pleasure. I did find another video on the on YouTube of someone who had this exact same fascination as me with this poor old lady. Oh, that, that <laughs> reminds me of this uh, video I once saw for Skate. Uh-huh. Oh, I think I've seen these Skate, skate 3 yeah, or well, something like that. Just bug after yeah, bug. Yeah, people uh, made uh, interesting use of the physics, but one video in particular where this guy deliberately... Uh, well, crashed, f- flew off his board, and landed right on this uh, bench, just, just sitting in this very casual position. I know exactly what you mean. I watched that one again recently. That's There's like two 10-minute videos of nothing but bug exploits in that game, and I laugh so hard at that. That's another good guilty pleasure, I guess, is watching videos mm. of bugs. But this one in particular from Skate is so, so funny. It's, like, endlessly funny. I feel like an idiot an idiot pothead or something laughing at this. <laughs> yeah, I kind of had a similar thing. Uh, what you mentioned, Max Payne 2, I had with the original Deus Ex. When you're in this uh, in the, this massive club, I think it was in China, where there's just all these people mm-hmm. around, you know, having a partying, having a good time, drinking. And I would just always just pull up my uh, gun and try and see how many of them I could take uh, down before they would kill me. Of course. 
It's our responsibility as video game players to test the limits of our simulations, <laughs> I figure. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, all right. What have you got next on your list? Well, it's, well, uh, considering we're kind of running low on time, I guess uh, I'll wrap things up with something a little different, namely a movie. Sure, and you're most welcome to come back to uh, conclude your list, by the way. Uh, that's no problem, but I, uh, I wanted to mention a movie next. Which oh, is sure. actually, well, related to video games. Oh, do tell. And, well, I think Anatoly's going to lynch me for saying this, but I actually enjoy the Doom movie. <laughs> I saw this in the theater. Me, I bought me it, too. too, but only for one yeah, scene. Yeah, the first person scene. Of course. But... Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say this. It was a stupid movie, but that first yeah. person scene, I think, is amazing. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I've got the DVD sitting on my shelf and I don't know if it's ever been watched uh, I've watched it a couple times I watched it last night to, just to prepare for this show oh great but yeah you know the movie doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to do with the game because they changed all the monsters from demons to mutants basically, basically yeah that's basically just kind of a zombie plague where they're trying to infect people and turn them into more monsters and for some reason for some weird reason they're only uh, targeting people that have the genetic markers for evil, because that's a thing that exists. Uh-huh. Wow, that's more than I remember about the movie. All I remembered was that they didn't have any mention of religious stuff. Well, no, th there actually was one character on the um, uh, Space Marine squad called Goat, who is a heavy, uh, heavily religious guy who's constantly quoting the Bible, and at one point he, uh, I think, well, he kicks, accidentally kicks a barrel down uh, some stairs, and he goes, God damn it! And then he pulls out a knife and he carves a cross in his arm because he took his name in vain. Ah. But no mention of hell or... Well, there's one point where the main character, he kind of says, don't you get it? This place, it's hell. It's always been. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. Wait. But there are parts of the movie that I legitimately enjoy because, well, for the most part, it's kind of a shallow aliens knockoff where you have a squad of Marines. They go into this facility to investigate the disturbance, and it turns out there's all these monsters running around that pick them off one by one. Mm -hmm. But there are some funny nods to the uh, game that I enjoy, like you have scientists named Dr. Carmack, Dr. Willits, named, named after John oh, yeah. Carmack and Tim Willits. Uh, there's a scene where the Sarge, played by The Rock... Dwayne Johnson, uh -huh. he finds the BFG and he exclaims big fucking gun sure <laughs> I always get a kick out of that mm. and then you have the character Pinky right, who's a, an engineer who uh, had an accident with a teleporter and now he has basically a wheelchair for an ass mm -hmm. and near the end of the movie he gets turned into a Pinky demon of course, which is part of the which is part of the first person action scene, and the protagonist fights him with a chainsaw. That's pretty badass. That's true. Well, that was the end of the first person scene, isn't it? Yeah, more or less. I think I I bought the DVD, and then I thought, oh, I should just look for this on YouTube to get to the good part. <laughs> and then there it was, so I didn't really need to buy well, it. But I don't mind buying it, even though I saw it in the yeah, theater. Yeah, me too. That first person scene I thought was just awesome, and it's like funhouse cheesy stuff. Oh, totally. But it's really, really and, cool. I think it's super cool. And I do appreciate also 
Uh, a lot. Uh, well, the monsters—they're all guys in suits. They're not CGI, so they went the extra mile to actually do that in practical effects, and they do resemble the monster designs from Doom Three. Like you, they're recognizable as the imps and hell knights from that movie, and the Pinky Demon, even though there's only one of them. Oh, that's right. Didn't they have heavy metal music or something playing during that yeah. scene, too? Yeah, well, throughout, throughout, throughout all of the action scene. movies as well. Uh, ori- original compositions composed by a guy named Clint Mansell. I don't know if he did any other movies. But I, that's also actually a part of the movie I enjoy, because parts of it actually kind of sound like uh, it could be something from the game. Like heavy guitar riffs and all that. Yeah, maybe there were little motifs or something that hint towards it. I, I don't remember. I just remember the movie having far less to do with the movie than or with the game than I hoped it would. Yeah, but you know, I st- I still enjoy it. It's a cheesy, good fun. Carl Carl Urban and The Rock are enjoyable, if nothing else. Especially since The Rock basically turns into the villain near the end of the movie when he starts going nuts and he gets infected. Hmm. Spoiler. Yeah. It's hardly worth hardly worth paying for. As yeah. I recall. Even though I did it twice. No, I I, I found it worth uh, paying uh, for that. I ended up buying it on DVD, so whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to watch it again now. <laughs> you kind of talked me into it. Yeah, video game movies. What a shame, in general. Have there been any good video game movies? Mm, some. Well, uh, if you look at some of the animated ones that are... Uh, from Japan, like uh, the Professor Layton movie was really damn good. Oh, I didn't know there was one. Oh, yeah. It's called uh, Professor Layton and the Eternal Diva. <laughs> it's uh, an orig- original plot, not directly based on any of the games. I think it takes place between some of the games or before them even. But, you know, it's a uh, same kind of setup. You know, Professor Layton and Luke investigating a mystery and solving puzzles along the way. You know, they, they kind of cleverly integrated that into the plot, uh, all the puzzles, I mean. Well, that sounds nice, because the puzzles are my least favorite thing about those games. I'm not good enough at them. Mm. I don't know, I played the first two games myself. I uh, enjoy the puzzles, even though they make me feel really stupid at times. But they have good plots as well. They're just like the same puzzles that you see in every puzzle game. Yeah, ever. that is true. Like sheep and wolves, and you got to get them across the lake or something one at a time, and... They're they're exactly the same like IQ test Mensa kind of puzzles that you've seen yeah. forever. But my my major problem with video game movies though is the basically the pointlessness of them because the the fun of a game is being able to play it, and that's yeah. what you lose when you make a movie out of them. And most well certain game the movie translations are based on games that didn't really have much of a plot to begin with. So yeah. That's right, or they had a specific plot and they screw it all up. I haven't seen yeah. any of them, but I've heard that the Resident Evil movies oh, God. just throw the whole plot out the window. Yeah, basically the Resident Evil movies were just a vehicle for the director to show off his hot wife. Yeah. Because uh, in those movies, Mila Jovovich, who played Lilu in The Fifth Element, which is an awesome movie, mm. but yeah, she plays an mm. original character named Alice who didn't appear in any of the games, and she basically just shows off how badass she is and how much better she is than all of the established characters from the games. Right. It's stupid. Yeah, I know. If it was an accurate game, then the characters would be, like, bumping into walls and <laughs> turning slowly. That would have been a great movie. 
There is one good video game movie I saw, I guess, and you reminded me of it by mentioning uh, anime, and that was the Animal Crossing. Oh yeah, anime. That movie's beautiful. Ah, that movie's adorable. Because that's a game that really has no point. Yeah. It's just kind of a slice of life yeah. kind of a game, and this is a slice of life sort of a movie story yeah. about it. It's just like any one story from from Animal Crossing. Yeah. That's basically exactly. The movie. It's it's very slow paced and very relaxing ah, and charming and sweet. Damn! Now I need to watch that again. It's been ages since I uh, saw that. I think I do too. And it has a song from KK Slice, <laughs> and it's a, and it's exactly what you hope it would be. Yeah. For, okay, he talks normally, but when he starts singing, he sounds oh, exactly yeah. like he does in the games with the weird synthesized That's voice. That's right, he has, this, like, he has this like sultry, low, Barry White kind of a voice <laughs> when he talks, and then he's like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That was a really good movie, actually. That's, that's probably the only good video game movie I ever saw, but go and... Oh, why don't, I'm, I'm the guy writing the show notes here. I'm going to put... Doom first-person thing in my show notes. <laughs> you do that. All right. Well, we're just rubbing up against the three-hour mark yeah. here. Um, do you have any uh, any uh, last little uh, admissions or uh, submissions that you'd like to talk about? Uh, not particularly. None that I can think of uh, so late in the game. Well, I guess I could mention that I also enjoyed the uh, Mortal Kombat movies, ironically. <laughs> the first one, I yeah, ironically, I haven't seen any the second movies. one too. Well, there there basically aren't any more movies unless you count there. Uh, there was a live action miniseries released online to coincide with the uh, reboot game, mm. but I didn't watch that. I hear it was okay. There was also the TV series, which was weird. Yeah, I never saw it. I can't imagine it was any yeah. good. How do you make a series of stories about a fighting game? Well, the, the fighting game does have its own plot. And it's not especially deep well, or anything, but the, the the TV series was very far removed from that with a bunch of original characters and everything, so it didn't even have a whole lot to do, a whole lot to do with that. But the, the movies I enjoy just for how goofy they are, especially the second one where you have all these random characters from the games just showing up for one scene, just, hey, yeah... This is the this is that character from the game. Oh, that's good because they only had like three or something characters from the game in the first one, three or four. Um, well, maybe no, they, had they, a few. They, had, they had quite a few. They well, you had uh, basically all the original characters from the first game, and a couple from the second. You had uh, Liu Kang, Raiden, Johnny Cage, Sonya, Kano. Oh, did they have Kano? I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> K- oh, K- I guess they had everybody then. Yeah, it was actually uh, weird. Uh, in the in the games, Kano was supposed to be Japanese. In the movie, he was played by an Australian guy with a really noticeable accent. Oh, was he Japanese in the game? I didn't. Yeah, realize. but because of how popular his portrayal was in the movie, they later changed uh, him in the games to Australian as well. Ha! Huh, neat. He does kind of strike me as Australian for some reason. Mm. So good choice, filmmakers. And of course, that uh, the first movie starts with. Uh, a phenomenal song, Halcyon and On and On by Orbital, which was also in Hackers. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, Hacker. Oh, my God, I completely forgot about that movie. Oh, we just watched that a little <laughs> while ago. I adore that movie. So bad, but so uh, so much fun. That it is. It's another guilty pleasure, I suppose. Even even yeah, though I haven't watched it in is. years. 
Yeah, oh, that's that's totally worth a rewatch. I love that one. <laughs> I own the soundtrack for that too, which is ah, great. delicious nineties to pop and techno. Mm-hmm. Yep, techno songs are great on that on that album, but there's some vocal songs which I really rub me the wrong way on that album, so it's hard to listen to. Mm, I don't know. I I don't think I've ever listened uh, found li- listen to the soundtrack of the movie itself. Nah, it's good enough in the movie. I don't remember that many songs either, aside from the one you mentioned by Orbital. Oh, there is a cool one by Prodigy. Oh yeah, well. the Voodoo People. Uh oh no, it's a different one, but it sounds similar. Did? I don't remember what it's called now. Oh, I thought for sure. Oh, you know what? There might have been two songs by Prodigy. Maybe Voodoo People was. No, in I'm that pretty too. sure Voodoo People was in there near the. Oh, okay, I don't remember. There's another or... one too where they're having like a a montage of hacking. Yeah. And uh, screwing yeah. things up for, uh, for for some bad police guy. Yeah, the main antagonist, the plague. Right. Oh no, not him, but some other police oh. government guy. <laughs> Mister Gill, they... according to our records, you're dead. I'm what? <laughs> yes, that's the guy, Mister Gill. <laughs> oh, awesome! Well, thank you so so much for coming onto the show. It's been great to great oh, to have problem. you here. Uh, thanks for having back. me again. Oh. Great pleasure. I, I barely touched my list, but that's okay. I think it was a good show. I talked about most of the things I wanted to talk about. Well, that's good. I have a gigantic list of uh, show notes here, so we can do lots of uh, uh, we can do lots of uh, post-show activities as well. So, um, before we go, is there anything that uh, you would like to uh, plug or tell people how to get in touch? Oh, with you? yes, of course. Uh, <clears throat> well, you can find me on Twitter at amayirodakago. A-M-A-Y-O-Y-I-R-O-T-A-K-A-G-O, but I'm sure you'll provide a link. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Tumblr. I'm iraqago.tumblr.com. I make my own uh, reviews on YouTube and other stuff that I feel like doing. Like recently I did a uh, Let's Play of Another World. Uh, also under the name I'm iraqago. Uh, I have my own blog where I occasionally post video game uh, reviews that I don't necessarily feel like making videos about or whatever, or, well, primarily stuff that I've recently played and uh, that I feel like talking about on akagos100gameoath.wordpress.com. And that's pretty much it. All right, good stuff. Yeah, I haven't. Have you blogged recently? I don't remember seeing anything in the past. Uh, the most recent post I made was Alien Isolation. Uh that's right. Yes, I uh, I have oh, yeah, I haven't really blog. updated a whole lot uh, before then. I think the yeah the pre- the previous post I made was on Broken Age, which was a couple of months back. Right. Yeah, yeah. I read your blog with much interest. I like that. Uh, I like that format. Oh, thank you. Sure. All right, well, I'll definitely put all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, listeners, uh, we love to hear from you. Uh, Tomer Gabel, thank you so much again for your voicemail. And uh, to um, Antonimity and to Chris Olson for uh, sending in their comments by uh, uh, Twitter. Thank you so, so much. If you want to get in, yeah, totally. If uh, you want to get in touch with the show, please do so on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com. By email, squarefm at demodulated.com. And on Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. And if uh, you'd like to get in touch with me personally on Twitter, I am at demodulated. 
Alright, so uh, as always, we wish you a very, very good week. We'll talk to you again next week. And uh, thank you very much for listening in. Always a pleasure. Always. And uh, take it easy, Akugo. Great to talk to you. You too. And uh, you keep being awesome yourself. Oh, I don't know any other way to be. <laughs> good. Same to you, Thanks. Pal. I will. Alright, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.